And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Well, we got through another 24 hours. We're all still here. (laughs) Welcome aboard. My guest tonight is going to take us back in time, back many centuries, to some history that I don't think you know. But I know you're going to be fascinated, so just kind of stay tuned for that. Uh, The top of the program, though, I do want to hit a couple of news items here. Uh, If you go to the other side of midnight.com so you can follow along in Radio with Pictures, go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the banner for tonight's show, which says, um, hang on a second, my screen is doing weird things. Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Computers are fine until they're not. Uh, It says basically Romerica. And we'll explain that as we go through the evening. You click on that. That will take you to the guest page for my guest tonight, David Brody. And then right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items, mine and David's. Click on mine. That will take you to number one. Uh, Just when you thought it was safe to come out of the panic room, uh, experts are now warning that the worst in the COVID-19 crisis is yet to come. And what I'm intrigued with, and you're going to want to read this very carefully, it's item number one. It's not so much the standard COVID-19 we're all familiar with for the last year, but in the last month or so, there have been these interesting variants popping up. I am very suspicious. I know the standard virological theory is that if you have a lot of people and they're all infected, they're all hosts to this virus, the little guys tend to mutate, you know, survival of the fittest. Literally, it's they keep changing. And then the ones that are more adapted, they go out and infect more people, et cetera, et cetera, in a, in a geometric curve. So I would kind of read that item, number one, and again, take appropriate precautions, which are so, so simple. It's just stay away from people people you don't know and wear a mask out in public it's just it's it's you know this is kind of common horse sense that goes back centuries and yet it's become this incredible contentious political chasm where there are people on both sides and there's all kinds of disinformation and misinformation etc cetera, etc cetera. um these new variants seem to be Certainly the one from South Africa seems to be more virulent and more deadly, although you need, you know, unfortunately, an accumulating database so you can find out how more deadly they are. Fortunately, those two prescriptions, until you get a vaccine, if you're going to take the vaccine, and um, there are several options there. There are plus sides and minus sides. We're going to go through that when we, you know, get to do our first vaccine show and we're looking for the right people And it's really important to have the right people because the Internet is an example of the wrong people, like any people, you know, garage mechanics who think they know something about viruses and they post and people read it. And, you know, they don't know their garage mechanics. Remember, years ago on Art Bell, I said on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog, Um, particularly if you can type. Anyway, um, take a look carefully at number one, because it's it's. it's common sense of what to do until other things take place. Item number two, uh, what passed us this week, because, of course, our show is on the weekend and not weekdays, 
On the 28th was the 35th anniversary of the Challenger disaster. And for those of you who know nothing about this, if you're new, if you weren't born when this happened, it was a major point of demarcation in the the nation's uh, space program. Um, And so you might want to dip into that and kind of think about those astronauts. The weirdest thing, Kanthea is going to love this, the weirdest thing I know of around the Challenger disaster was my own experience watching television, hanging obviously on every moment when we thought they might be alive, et cetera, and they could be rescued. And then those hopes were dashed. And of course, you know, a couple of days later, there was a memorial and where the Challenger, you know, had impacted in the Atlantic Ocean offshore of uh, Cape Canaveral. And they flew a chopper out, and this is all on live television, and they dropped a commemorative wreath where seven uh, astronauts, who are listed, of course, in that article, died, including the first teacher in space, which when you look at the patch, um, they even had a little red apple in the original patch for her plans for teaching students from orbit. Anyway, I'm watching this live television thing, and they're, they've got the chopper in. It's maybe you know 300 feet, 200 feet over the ocean. Uh, you can't really tell because you, know, you don't know the size of the waves. And they drop the wreath, and I swear this is real. It's on videotape somewhere. It may even be on the Internet somewhere. I haven't you know, even thought to look. But when that wreath hit the water, seven. I counted them. Seven dolphins breached the water gracefully like they do and dove back in. It was absolutely amazing. Amazing. And, of course, there are people that will say, oh, coincidence, coincidence. Okay. Having some personal experience with what happens um, after death, uh, through my robin, I really wonder what those dolphins were doing um, in that incredible synchron. It was like a synchronized ballet at uh, SeaWorld or something. It was it was astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Anyway, item number three: um, the Challenger crew died in the effort to basically expand the presence of humanity into space. And um, that's very important, as we're going to get to in a couple of minutes, and become increasingly important. Uh, in the next uh, you know, month or so, NASA is going to do a second test of the massive SLS rocket, the um, uh, uh, Space Launch System, uh, that went through a first hot fire test you know, a week or so ago. And it was supposed to run for eight minutes, you know, the engine, so they can test all kind of parameters as the rocket is held down on the test stand. And apparently it only ran, they only ran for 67 seconds before there was a cutoff, automatic cutoff. Something went wrong and the computers, you know, looking at all these parameters said, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We don't go any further. Now, they turns out they only need about four minutes of data, but they want to do eight minutes because eight minutes is the time the first stage has to burn to get the spacecraft to the right altitude for the second stage to fire. Hmm. So that's coming up 
probably in the fourth week in February. You might want to make a note of that if you're interested in our Return to the Moon and the Artemis program, which leads directly to item number four. NASA has delayed the moon lander contracts. There are three companies that are in competition for creation of the modern LEM, the lunar module for the Artemis uh, missions to the moon. And they've delayed the um, uh, letting of the contracts until April. And everybody's saying, oh, that's going to mess up the timeline. Well, Elon Musk and are in the running for that contract. My bet is they're going to be chosen. And my bet is they're going to exceed their timetable because Musk has all kinds of uh, historical uh, uh, evidence. He does things quicker and uh, cheaper. And sometimes the quicker isn't there, but sometimes it is. And so I'm kind of betting on Musk and SpaceX. So I do not think, as the article maintains, that this is any kind of fatal blow to the Artemis program to make it back to the moon by 2024. Remember, things are accelerating. Life is not linear. It is geometric. The rate of change is accelerating. The rate of the rate of change is accelerating. So I think the jury is still out on uh, whether NASA will make the timetable. And, of course, the big uncertainty is the change of administrations. Uh, Will the Biden administration view the program, the Artemis program, to get us back to the moon uh, as quickly as possible, uh, be continued uh, after it was started by the Trump administration. Um, as you know, the Trump uh, administrator of NASA forewarned that he was going to resign when uh, the new administration you know, took, took over, and he has. So the running of NASA is now uh, on the um, backs of the deputy administrator, and the Biden crew have yet to pick uh, an appropriate NASA administrator. We'll know a lot about Joe Biden and um, um, uh, Ms. Harris' uh, perceptions of the American space program by who they choose as the administrator and that what policies he uh, pursues. So, you know, kind of stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you take a look at number five, this is what I'm really betting on. I mean, government programs are one thing. But what we have seen in the last several years has been this dramatic rise of private space corporations, private launch companies, private space programs, private exploration, private satellites, um, free enterprise at its best. So there's a main company, which is basically uh, run by a bunch of students, and they launched a couple of days ago their first prototype rocket a uh, scaled-down version of what they're eventually going to be creating, and it was successful, went up, uh, I don't know the altitude, but there's so many of these proliferating. I'm betting, is betting a good term these days? I'm betting on the private sector to do all kind of really amazing things in space, assisted by NASA and by the government program as a kind of a backstop. Um, And I would not be surprised if some of these private corporations like SpaceX get funding from NASA to do things in a somewhat unconventional way as a kind of a test bed. Moving on, all of this is important that we get off Earth and we get off Earth in a big way and we find out as a culture what's really out there 
because there's stunning, amazing stuff out there, starting with ancient artifacts on the moon and on Mars and on Mercury and on Ceres and on some of the moons of Jupiter, like Ganymede. Oh, boy, is Ganymede a story. And on and on and on. And of course, you know nothing of this because NASA has chosen not to tell you. And that goes back to something called the Brookings Report, which you can find here on Enterprise. I would recommend that you read it. The bottom line is that for the last oh, 50 years, we've kind of been imprisoned on Earth. Yeah, we have space programs, but they're highly controlled. They're government operations. If things are found, they can be easily censored. I mean, only 12 guys you know, went, went to the moon, and they're the only ones that ever saw anything firsthand. And one that I talked to extensively about this, Ed Mitchell, resoundingly denied he'd seen anything, but he was first and foremost in the UFO field, as you all heard last night, with his um, uh, uh, Wilson memo, which by chance got saved after Ed died and his family, his wife and whomever, wanted to basically throw his papers away, which frankly is insane. What possessed them? I mean, there's got to be a movie there someplace. Anyway, if we don't get out of the box we're in, which is Earth, which is the closed system we're trapped in, if we don't open up the system, we are not long for this world. The indicators are all there. Just, just, Google climate, Google resources, Google social unrest, Google, you know, authoritarianism, Google, Google anything like that. And it all comes down to too many people fighting over too few resources with one group trying to keep the other group down. That is a prescription now in the 21st century for disaster. The antidote is to open up the system. Now, you're not going to really open up the system with rockets. You know, they're kind of primitive. They're 5,000-year-old technology. And even though there's better materials and better valves and better fuels, they're still just rockets and they have limits, physical limits. But one of the things I'm betting on is that whomever gets to the moon first in this era is going to have to acknowledge what is there. And once that process begins, there will be no stopping it. And, of course, going to be library locations. There's going to be artifacts. There's going to be memory cards or crystals or whatever. And those will have stored the accumulated knowledge of how many, literally, million years of previous civilizations on this planet as well as maybe elsewhere in the galaxy. So once we get our hands on that data, what now look like insuperable challenges to life on Earth, starting with energy, will become wide open territory and entrepreneurs once again will save civilization. Anyway, moving on. My guest tonight, instead of looking forward, is uh, looking in a different direction. He's been looking back, back at some things we thought we knew about North America, the springboard of this American experiment, 
And it turns out the things we didn't know are really important to now bring up to speed. David Brody is an American. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's an American. He's an Amazon and Boston Globe bestselling fiction writer and author of 12 historical novels. His children call him a rock nerd because of the time he spends studying ancient stone structures, which he believes, he's not alone, is really good evidence of a pre-Columbian exploration of America, of the continent. Dave is a graduate of Tufts University and the Georgetown Law School. He has appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on the History Channel, Travel, PBS, Discovery, and some others. And he lives currently in Newburyport, Massachusetts, with his wife, sculptor Kimberly Scott. David, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. Well, let's see. Where should we begin? Um, when I when I find someone who's got you know a really good career in one area, and then is really working as a citizen scientist in a career as far away from their first career as one can imagine, you know, you're a lawyer. What do you know about archaeology? Well, it turns out that is an important story. So start with. How did you wind up being an archaeological lawyer? You know, it's something I never thought I would end up doing. I had always wanted to be a writer. I was an English major in college. And like many English majors, you sort of have the path. You can go to journalism school. You can go get a master's in creative writing. Or you can, like I did, go to law school. Because, you know, to be a good writer, usually uh, – portends a, a, a successful career in the law, but I always wanted to write, I always wanted to write historical fiction. And so late at night when my, when I was a young lawyer and my friends are going out to the bars and the clubs and doing whatever, I'd go home and I'd start trying to write. And it never really happened until years later when, when my wife and I married and we had children and, and uh, I finally said, all right, now I'm going to do it. And I started writing legal thrillers and I had written three legal thrillers and I was living at that time in a town uh, northwest of Boston, Westford, Massachusetts. And the town of Westford had a local legend about uh, Scottish explorers coming to the town of Westford about 100 years before Columbus. And my daughter came home from school one day to tell me the story, and I'd never heard it, but there's a monument in the center of town, and I went up to look at it, and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. There was a carving of a medieval knight in the rock ledge, which supposedly was the the residue of this group coming here and one of their guys died and they carved this night, the Westford night into the rock ledge. And it really, again, changes history as we know it. It makes Columbus really a hundred years late to the party. And so I went down that rabbit hole. That was about 14 years ago. And Richard, I've been ferreting around in the dusty corners of history ever since, sort of in desperate need of a, a change of clothes or the shower. But that's how I first started getting involved in this whole idea of exploration of America before Columbus. And it turns out, and this is where my training as a lawyer really comes in handy. It's not that much different than building a case in the law arena. It all comes down to evidence. You know, that, that's really what it comes down to. If we're going to change the way we look at history, we need to bring our A game. We need to bring evidence. And what that translates to generally is ancient artifacts. And so that's sort of my how I got into this and that sort of is what gives me uh, the ability, I think, to 
to to do that, to ferret around in those dusty corners and come out with with some interesting theories and some proof and and be on shows like yours and, and talk to listeners about these these sort of hidden uh, hidden corners of American history. Hmm. So this was a long evolution, and it was almost by chance you living there in Westford, which I know for a very different reason. The uh, you know space experiment that was named after Westford, uh, where they right. launched a, a kind of a Saturnian ring of metallic needles around the Earth, and the idea was to beam radio waves from a big radio telescope there, uh, run by Lincoln Labs, at the ring. And they were cut to the right length so they would resonate like radio antennas do with the right wavelength. And then you would have what would be a passive uh, reflector slash amplifier, which could be picked up by other radio telescopes like, you know, half a world away. It turned out not to be practical because the needles re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And it also screwed up, you know, some radio astronomy folks, which they weren't happy about. But that's so so Westford has anchors in history at two ends of a century's long spectrum. <laughs> and it's funny because you mentioned the Lincoln Lab site in Westford, and I stumbled upon that because I was out in the woods looking at some of these ancient stone structures, which it turns out are right next to that. Oh, and my so, God. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just a coincidence. But, but yes, um, I think uh, being along the Merrimack River, uh, which is sort of the ancient highway coming in from the Atlantic coast into New England, is why we find a lot of these ancient stone structures in and around the Western area. And then, of course, being near uh, Harvard and MIT and all the great colleges in greater Boston is why Lincoln Labs ended up being there as well. Hmm. So you're just kind of living in this place, and you begin to suspect that there may be more to the place than you thought, right? Right. So again, it comes down to evidence. And, and, you know, my training as a lawyer is in identifying and critiquing, weighing and uh, parsing evidence. And so this this night carving that that I went up to look at that very first day when my daughter came home from school, I looked at it and said, well, that's sort of that's a very interesting piece of evidence. But you're not going to win a case in front of a jury with just a single piece. We're not going to rewrite the history books because of this carving. There's other possible explanations. And I thought to myself, well, if, if, if these people really were here, if, if the, the gentleman's name was Prince Henry Sinclair, if, he, if Sinclair really was here in 1398, 1399, there should be other evidence. And so I went out looking for it. And this is where the internet, I, you mentioned that in your, in your news briefs, how we, we live in a really changing time and a really exciting time. And the internet makes things possible that weren't possible a generation ago. A generation ago, a guy. Well, like hang, on, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, David. Only yes. if you know how to use it. That's the key. The, inter- the internet is a real good story, bad story, because so much stuff on the internet is just crap. How, as a lawyer, did you begin to filter the nonsense from the signal? So. First, you have to first you have to find find the data. So what I, what I'm looking for at that time again is this would not have been hot possible a generation ago. But now I'm looking for I'm in a certain area of Massachusetts and I know three or four ancient artifacts. Okay, 
what I did, what I would not have known a generation ago is there's a guy in a town in Maine and there's another woman in a town in Vermont and there's a couple of people down in Rhode Island and all of them have the same kind of little local oddities, but mm. we're not communicating with each other because we didn't have the ability to. Now, all of a sudden with the internet, I can type in out of place artifacts or ancient artifacts and I see, wow, there's a carving in Rhode Island that looks a lot like my carving in Massachusetts. So the internet introduces me to that. And now, of course, I got to get in my car and drive to <laughs> Rhode Island with a friend who's a geologist and actually do, you know, do the, do the analysis. But the actual first step in finding the information is made possible via, via the internet. Again, would not have been possible a generation ago. And so now all of a sudden, it turns out there's not just three or four artifacts in and around Westford. There's 15 or 20 artifacts around New England which all seem to tell the same story. And it wasn't just the 14th century exploration. We find evidence of exploration going back perhaps to the, uh, to the Celtic groups in the 6th century. Of course, we know about the Norse and the Vikings in the 11th century. And then we'll, later on, we'll talk about my latest work, which is the Roman artifacts in the 2nd century. And there's probably stuff even before that, maybe the ancient Phoenicians. But again, it all, for me, it all comes back to finding the artifacts, they're the evidence. How do you get around the idea that these things, you know, we're talking about this, this night, uh, what, petroglyph, pictograph, what would you call it? Yeah, petroglyph, yes. Petroglyph, okay. Since you can't date rock, and anybody can come along and carve anything, how could you view that as evidence other than it's an anomaly, but there's zero context? Yeah, well, exactly. So that's why you need, that's why a couple things. Um, we talk a lot about preserving all these rock sites because you're right, as of today, they can't be dated with a scientific method. Now that, that's starting to change. We'll get more into that later. But one of the reasons why it's so important to preserve these sites is that eventually science will catch up and we will be able to date some of these carvings. But secondly, you need to find other evidence that is, uh, that corroborates that. So for example, Near the Westford Knight carving was found a stone in the 1920s called, we call it the boat stone, uh, which is carved in a similar manner. It was pecked and, and displayed on that stone is a medieval ship called a Nor. And we think that the same people who carved the Knight also carved the boat stone. Now the Knight is- No, wait, wait, how, 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 how can you know that? From from the art, we don't. We just because the because of the the, the style is done. The pecking is the same. Yeah, that, 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 that's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we were able to do with this this boat stone is we were able to ship that out to a lab in Minnesota. The the stone itself is about the size, it's about 250 pounds, maybe 18 inches by 20 inches. But that we could ship to a lab, and inside the lab you can now get down and dirty into the carved areas and microscopically examine those carved areas and determine how long that carving has been out in a weathering environment because mm. certain minerals, certain grains will wear away. They will be, they will be acted upon by the elements and they will, they will, they, their, their edges will, will become smoother. And a geologist can look at it and he can't give you an exact date, but they can say, listen, that, that carved area has been in a weathering environment, freezing and thawing and wind and whatever, rain for 600 years, let's just say, because that's the date that came back on the boat stone. Mm. So that 600 years brings you right back to 1400. That's perfect. So by association, if we assume those two artifacts 
are related to each other. And we know one is about 600 years old. Now that corroborates the other one. And so that's the kind of science that we do to try to put the pieces of this puzzle together. Mm. That almost sounds like, um, what, what was I going to say? Uh, Scott Walter's territory. Well, he was a geologist. Exactly. That's who we sent this, this uh, stone to back in 2007. Tiny, we tiny. We sent it to Scott planet. Walter in Minnesota. Tiny, tiny planet. Okay. Hold it there. Yeah. We're at the bottom okay. of the hour. My guest this morning is David Brody, citizen scientist. He's also a lawyer. So I'm going to ask him some kind of lawyerly like questions. Tonight, we're returning across centuries to who was here, who came here, the forest. And a question I'm going to get to probably later in the evening is, if all this is so incredibly apparent from folks we've had on the show like Scott and like Dennis Stone and many others, how come it's not taught in school? How come academia has been ignoring this for literally centuries maybe there are some answers in uh, david's presentation tonight and maybe not you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return ago that says, am I being selfish? And I said, absolutely, but I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. I see the loss of rights and freedoms. I've lived long enough to know what's happened here, and I cannot stand back and simply comply. I'm going to resist those measures with everything that I have, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically, legally. I cannot allow our rights and freedoms to be taken from us. We have to stand up for them. This is where I say that we have to become adults. We have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. We can't ask for them. We have to demand that they be honored and respected. To me, the masking is part of the strategy of totalitarian tiptoe. We just keep encroaching on you, and it's just a little bit worse than it was yesterday. And most people don't see it, but we see it. And that's why this program and the work that you guys are doing is so important. Hi, this is Ted Kunz from Vaccine Choice Canada. 
I just want to reach out and express my gratitude to other side of the news for all that you guys are doing to empower humanity and bring us to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, the time that we shared together was a real pleasure, rich conversation, and I know that all of you are uh, higher conscious beings who are part of the solution. I just want to express my gratitude to Cynthia, Timothy, and Aneta and your program, The Other Side of the News. You guys are great. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest this morning is citizen scientist and attorney David Brody. We're talking about his almost accidental, although is anything anymore in life really accidental, his accidental discovery that in Westford, Massachusetts, a place I know well because I used to live down the street in Springfield, and went to Westford and went to Boston and all that down the world's most expensive Main Street, the uh, Boston, you know, turnpike. Um, David, uh, so you reached out to people like Scott. And what did what was the kind of result of that first analysis? Was this the thing that right, made so you that- realize <clears throat> that this ancient stuff might actually be real? Right. Well, Scott had done some really, um, you know, er, uh, groundbreaking work on the, on the runestone out in Minnesota, the Kensington runestone. And he had sort of come to the conclusion based on a similar weathering analysis that I just described for the boat stone, that the Kensington runestone itself also was, was not a hoax and therefore must be what it says it is, uh, an artifact from the 14th century. And so that's how I met Scott. He happened to be out in Westford researching the, the night and the boat stone at the same time I sort of stumbled into this. And we became friends and, and collaborators on our research. And we started driving around New England together and looking at different sites. And of course, he with his, uh, his expertise as, as a geologist, and then uh, combined with you know, my ability, hopefully to analyze and, 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 and weigh evidence and, and be analytical, you know, mostly him, a little bit of me, we were able to do a lot of this research together. And um, one of the things I always said to Scott was something I learned in law school, which was which was my evidence professor saying on the very first day, saying, listen, you're going to build your case. You're going to put all your evidence and you're going to put it on the table and you have to build a case using every piece of that evidence. You can't just take nine pieces of evidence and ignore the 10th and call it a day. You have to use all 10 pieces. And then later on, more evidence is going to walk in the door and your case still has to stand with those new pieces. Otherwise, you're on the wrong track. And what, what Scott and I have found in the past 12, 13, 14 years is that, sure enough, every time a new artifact walks in the door or a new scientific method is perfected and allows us to test these artifacts, the story holds. The, 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 it's consistently been, been, I guess keep using the word corroborated, but the story continues to hold that, yes, indeed, there was a group of of medieval explorers here in the 14th century in New England, in Minnesota, 
leaving behind evidence of their journey in the, in the sense of artifacts and sites like things like the Newport Tower in Newport, Rhode Island and, and other things. But again, the evidence tells a certain story. We may not have every single detail exactly right, but there is a story there, a story that needs to be told. And eventually the science will come around and catch up and, and we'll be able to tell it <laughs> with precision. Well, it's not catch, caught up for the last century or so. And, you know, the Kensington Stone, I remember reading about it when I was a kid and the controversies and, and uh, the fact that it was basically dismissed, which, of course, made me curious, like, uh, why would they just automatically think it wasn't wasn't real with the tree roots wrapped around it, that kind of thing? Anyway, uh, right, right. let's go back to you. Why don't we look at this through your eyes? After you found the night and then found that it was really old, take us through, you know, your, your evolution. What, what did you want to do next? So then I started looking uh, at, who, at the Sinclair fellow. Who is, who is Prince Henry Sinclair, oh the legend? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, who is that? And, and, and I, was, I was amazed to, to run head on into an oncoming train known as the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> it's the Sinclair family that built <laughs> Prince Henry Sinclair's grandson built Rosalind Chapel. That's the chapel made famous in the Da Vinci Code. And it's the Sinclair family that's named in the Da Vinci Code. And I remember waking my wife up in the middle of the night about a year into my research saying, oh my gosh, Kim, it just occurred to me why that Sinclair name is familiar. And I got out of bed and found the book because both she and I had read it, of course. And, and like, oh my gosh, as amazing as all this history is that we were discovering and studying, it turns out there's a reason why this group of explorers may have come over here. And it may have to do with Knights Templar and treasures and getting away from the church and Mary Magdalene and all sorts of areas. Again, I had never really studied before. And well, quickly, I had to get up to speed. But it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, you know, eventually we'll get back to the Roman artifacts uh, that are even earlier than that, and they tie into some of this stuff with the you know Temple of Solomon as well. But it, it it's a been a fascinating fascinating journey for me. Uh, for for again for for a, a lawyer who you know spent a lot of his time doing doing just sort of mundane law, all of a sudden to be researching archaeology and hidden corners of history and the Knights Templar and ancient religions and it's it's been a fun it's been a fun ride. I have to tell you, there are very few people, Richard, who have uh, Scott and I always say this together. Who has more fun than we do? We often <laughs> say to each other. It's true. We have a well, lot of fun. Well, I'll tell very, you what. Very fortunate to do something that we really enjoy. I will see your Roman <clears throat> artifacts on the North American continent, and raise you lunar <laughs> artifacts on the moon. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll win that bet. I tell you that. That's you, you'll trump me on that. No, nope. sorry to use that that word. Probably we said we stay away from politics. But yeah, if obviously Roman artifacts is one thing. If you've got lunar artifacts, that that would be quite something. Well, uh, only to the old. only to the extent that academia lags. It's not a leading indicator. It's a lagging indicator. And now, given the tools, and you very eloquently laid out how the internet can be used for extraordinary progress. This knitting people together, you know, who are thousands of miles apart, but looking at the same kind of data, that was impossible. That's why, you know, us citizen guys out here have a chance against the so-called experts because we have better communications and we have fewer 
I think, pre-apprehensions, prejudices. So back to you. After you really got into this, what did you do next? So remember how I got into this was I was researching or or sort of looking around for an idea for what I thought was going to be another legal thriller. And I quickly came upon the realization that what I was going to write was not going to be a a legal thriller, but instead a historical thriller, you know, Mm -hmm. a, a historical fiction type thing, because this was a treasure trove of information and no one had really told that story before. It was interesting because as I was in the library in Westford looking through, we have a Westford night collection of different sources. I noticed a couple times that Dan Brown had taken out books related to the Westford night. Ah. And I struck me like, why didn't he actually write a sequel to the Da Vinci code telling this side of the story? He lives in Massachusetts, not far from Westford. And, and I, from what I heard from different people was that he was basically told it was too, you know, he had, he had taken a lot of heat for the Da Vinci code and he didn't want to take heat again for telling this rest of the story. Cause, it, because again, there was some, you know, political and religious third rails that you don't want to touch here. So yeah, but he wait, 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 allowed me to do it. Wait a minute, but, wait, um, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Controversy sells. How do you think William Randolph Hearst made enough money to import all that <clears throat> marble from Italy to build, you know, that castle on the West Coast. Why would right. a publisher not want you to pursue something that would, if for no other reason, you know, or, or not, not, not you, but, but Dan Brown, you know, controversy be damned, you know, readers, buyers don't care about the controversy. I can't speak for him. I can only speak for myself. And, and for example, the reaction my mother-in-law had, which was when she read the draft of my book, you can't publish that. Your kids are going to get beat up at school. Now, that didn't happen. But you know, that, that's the kind of thing that might play into a decision for an author or a researcher or a TV personality to push forward with something. There might be other issues besides just the economics of, of that decision. Hmm. I have some questions about Dan Brown and his research for Da Vinci, but that's, a, that's probably a separate show. After you found he checked out these books, what next? Yeah, well, that was just that was just a, sort of a happened to have seen, seen that. But I, I um, you know, people ask me why why didn't you write this uh, in a in a nonfiction? You, I've got a series of books. There's eleven of them. I'm working on a twelfth one now, and they all talk about they're all they're all triggered by. Uh, exploration of America before Columbus and readers often ask, well, why didn't you do nonfiction? And again, it all goes back to the original way I fell into this was I'm a fiction writer. It's what I love to tell stories. Uh I love when I read, I love to learn history, but I also like to do it on a thrill ride on a roller coaster. That's the kind of thing I like to read. So it's also the kind of thing I like to write. And I found that, you know, oftentimes that's, that's what readers enjoy as well. Um, so for me, this was, this was easy. This was, this was like a no brainer. I couldn't wait to get pen to paper or, or fingers to keyboard, I guess mm-hmm. is a more appropriate expression in modern times. Um, and, and as soon as the first one was done, you know, I, 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 I there was so, there was so much be, even beyond new England, ancient artifacts. Uh, the second book had to do with something called Burroughs cave in Illinois, the artifacts there, but tied to that were these artifacts found in the Catskill Mountains and, and evidence found in, in, in churches up in Montreal. And uh, that, you know, that was the second book in the series. And, and they just kept 
you know, they just kept flowing. Um, the last one, this Romerica one that I wrote, the Roman artifacts, I literally wrote the entire book, Richard, in 101 days. Hmm. I sat down chapter one and 90,000 words later it was 101 days, the end, which is really fast for, for, for me at least. And I think for most writers, but there was so much evidence and it was so compelling and it just poured out of me. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the amount of stuff that's out there and it's not, not that like, not like I'm discovering it. This is stuff that's, again, this exists. I just happen to be the one piecing it all together, but the amount of stuff that's out there going back to the earliest days, a, a lot of the sources I rely on, for example, with the Roman artifacts, stuff written in the early 1800s, um, George Rod, uh, I'm sorry, George Rogers Clark, who's the brother of Lewis and Clark was writing about this stuff. He, he, he lived on the other side of Louisville, Kentucky in a town in called Clarksville, Indiana. He was writing about Roman artifacts back in the very first years of the 1800s. And, you know, it's, it's up to people like me to sort of find these writings again, but it's not like I'm finding these artifacts. These artifacts were found hundreds of years ago. Um, even the Western night legend, I was surprised to read uh, 1893, I believe, was Chicago World's Fair, which actually was a celebration of the Columbus expedition. But even then, there were there were demonstrations by Scandinavians saying, "No, no, no! Columbus wasn't first. Prince Henry Sinclair from Scotland was here in the late 1300s." I thought the Sinclair legend was something that came about in the 1970s. I didn't realize it was 130 years old, even back in the 1890s. Oh, my people were talking mind. about. Scottish explorers of, uh, in America before Columbus. I didn't know hmm. that. Again, you know, as a lawyer, didn't it kind of intrigue you that all this evidence and, you know, data going back at least 100 years <clears throat> and it hadn't, you know, kind of taken hold? Very much so. And so now we get into, and this is one of the areas where Scott and I tend to disagree a little bit is, you know, is this some kind of conspiracy where Bingo. the government or Smithsonian doesn't want us to know the true history of America or is, and that's what many people believe, or is it more just one of academic types are lazy and they're stubborn. And once they stake out a position on an issue, they don't like to change their mind. That's where I fall on this. I, I don't find the big conspiracy. I just find a lot of laziness and stubborn people who have said something, written something, and don't want to have to change their mind and end up with egg on their face. So I, I, I come down on less on conspiracy and more on just human nature. Hmm. Except <clears throat> if it is a conspiracy, you need to know about it because it will never get published and widely accepted unless you confront the conspiracy. There's a conspiracy of silence. I agree with you on that. So, so maybe, maybe these things merge. There's definitely a, um, in academia, especially sort of an unwritten rule that if you, if you, talk about explorers being here before Columbus, you're not going to get tenure. You're not going to get published. You know, it, it's definitely poo pooed. And so there's that. I'm not sure that's a conspiracy as much as it is sort of an old boys club protecting each other. We're, we're, we're quibbling over, over slight shades of gray there, I think, but, but, um, well, the thing that makes I, me, <clears throat> the thing that makes me think it's really a conspiracy to keep us in the dark because, the quickest way that you basically control people is keep them from the knowledge of who they really are. And I'm not talking about any subgroups. I'm talking about the human race as a whole. And it's really extraordinary history, which very few people even suspect, although there's a lot more conversation now with 
you know, ancient aliens and the history channel and all of these alternative views. But again, I know the career of a young um, archaeologist who was, I think she was at the University of Virginia, and I forget her name. It'll come to me later. But she was working on a site in California called Calico, and she discovered and had incredible robust evidence for habitation of the North American continent 250,000 years ago, which, of course, wow. totally blows everybody's minds given their the most extreme, you know, um, uh, apprehensions of immigration, you know, across the Bering Strait and the, you know, the uh, during the um, Ice Age was like something like 20,000 years ago. So she, right. by a factor of 10. So, yes, what was that? I said it blows it away by a factor of 10. Yeah, exactly. They drummed her out of the core. She's no longer practicing archaeology, as far as I know, at any major university or institution because she so put it up against the academic mainstream that they had one of two choices, follow the evidence or get rid of her. And they got rid of her. Now, is that just academic jealousy or is there something else going on? I personally had an experience um, where there had been reported in the 80s the discovery of radioactive sand in the Great Pyramid, in one of those secret chambers uh, behind the wall of the, of the um, uh, tunnel that leads to the uh, Queen's Chamber. And samples were taken, and I know from a source that they were taken to the Smithsonian to be analyzed and had their radioactivity measured. And I had a source in the Smithsonian, and I had her go look there was never any record of them even being checked in. The road stopped where they entered the Smithsonian. And you can't tell me that wouldn't be a stunning, important discovery that should be broadcast and published widely, radioactive sand in a hidden chamber behind the wall leading to the Queen's Chamber. And you will find okay. no reference. And I know this because... A mainstream archaeologist whose name was Gypsy Graves uh, was giving a presentation, I think, in Tennessee, and she's the one that first turned me on to this because she had evidence <clears throat> from people who had been in Egypt, you know, as part of this collegial, you know, academic group, that this sampling had taken place. But when it got to the Smithsonian, it completely disappeared. It's like that that final scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where the, you the Ark of the got Covenant it. You got it. Okay, so place. we've been talking about evidence, evidence, evidence. We've got about 10 minutes till the top of the hour. Start with the best early evidence you saw that led you deeper. The, the Newport Tower in Rhode Island, to me, just screams medieval. And I think that if anybody... If, you, if your if listeners have seen that, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen it or at least seen pictures of it. Oh yes, it's yes. a round, yeah, it's a, a round stone tower uh, in the do, Romanesque style. Do we style. have Do we have yeah. any images of it in your? Oh, there it is, number seventeen, in radio with pictures. Excellent. There it so, is. Um, and 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 any and again, anybody who would see that in, um, you know, in 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 the British Isles would have no doubt that it was medieval. <laughs> 
I just just look at it. I mean, you know, it's not something that you typically would see in America. And the mainstream historians tell us that it was built um, in the late 1600s by the governor of Rhode Island at the time, Benedict Arnold, who's the great grandfather of the trader Benedict Arnold. And they tell you it was built as a as a windmill because the Easton Mill burned down that year. 1675 was the year. We, you know, we, we tell this to, to, to structural engineers and they, they look at that and they just start laughing because clearly you would never build a, a windmill on with that design. It would never withstand the lateral forces of a, of a sail that would be pulling the thing side to side. It would support a lot of weight vertically. If you put something on top of the tower, it would hold it up. But if you start shaking that thing side to side, it would crumble at the first strong wind. To say so nothing to say nothing of the resonant vibrations of the different rotation rates. It, it, exactly. It makes the, the structural engineers just laugh at that whole idea. Not to mention that the style is so clearly Romanesque. There's a, there's a fireplace inside there, which you would never have if you're gristing flour because it would be combustible. The fireplace has a flue, which has a, it's a double flue, like a devil's horn, which is a unique to 14th century Scotland. Mm. The unit of measurement to build the, structure was a Scottish L. Uh, we were able to get, you asked about science earlier on, carbon dating a piece of um, uh, uh, shell, a, a, a shell. A, a ancient, mor- ancient mortar was, uh, was made using um, sh- seashells because of the line. And we found a, a piece of seashell on a, on a chunk of mortar that had fallen off during an archaeological dig. And we carbon dated the seashell at Woods Hole Oceanographic Society, and it came back as early 1400s. So there's just so many pieces of mm. evidence that scream out that this is medieval and not a colonial windmill. Um, one of the things that we're working on now, uh, you had mentioned earlier about testing rock, and we can't date rock. There's a new technology called optically stimulated luminescence, which uh, Typically, it was done on dirt, but essentially wait, 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 wait. Are we it, talking optical or thermal? Because I know about thermal luminescence as a dating technique. You know, optical. So essentially, what happens is when you when you build, say, a stone chamber, and you and you and you extract and you and you put the stone against some dirt, and presumably that stone has not moved since the date of construction. If you can get that dirt out from behind the stone without exposing it to light, you can then measure that dirt assuming there's some quartz fragments in it, quartz, quartz or something else, I forget. But you can determine when the last time was that dirt was exposed to sunlight. Oh, my God. There's also God. a way to do that with stone. That's and you wonderful. Can date. So it's amazing. And so we're able to date a stone So you do your and, excavation at night with no lights. Or you, you take, put a tent over it. Yeah. Put a tent over, yep. And you take yep. your sample, and then you put it in the lab, and then you look for the resonance, uh, fluorescence in the quartz. Because quartz is very ubiquitous. Quartz crystals are everywhere. Especially in New England. Yep. And so so the group I belong to, New England Antiquities Research Association, we just uh, we got a grant. Um, and we, were, we just went around to about 15 or 20 sites around New England and took samples and sent these samples out to a lab in Washington State. And we're waiting on results. But we're hoping that some of these dates come back and verify that some of these structures, these chambers, these stone structures – are pre-Columbus. There we go. Some mm. science. Uh, one of the sites we hope to test. <laughs> what a, what a concept. Science. Wow. Yeah. 
get signed. But we, we were hoping to do the Newport Tower. We did, did not have permission in time to do it this first round, but we're hoping to go down deep beneath those pillars yeah. and there are foundation stones and get uh, either some dirt or one of those foundation stones. The stone itself can be tested, by the way, as long as it hasn't been exposed to light itself. We can test either dirt or stone. And we're going to test something from that tower and hopefully get a date that says, I don't know, 1398, something like that would be great, late 1300s, mm. and prove once and for all that this is not a colonial structure. Oh, you bring up is- a very interesting question. Uh, carbon yes. dating has a plus or minus factor because of changes in cosmic ray intensity, which create you know, uh, carbon-14 and all that. What's the error bar on the optical dating technology? It's about 10%. The scientists explain to us that a lot of it depends on how good a sample it is. But they basically give you, if you tell you it's 300 years, it could be 330 or 270. It's about plus or minus 10%. It's pretty accurate. If you get a date that says, you know, if you get a date that says 1610, which is technically before anyone was in Rhode Island, that's probably not going to move the needle very much because maybe it's 1650 instead. But if you get a date that's 1410 or 1310, now you've got enough of a of a bear of a of a of a, of a uh, safe harbor there away from your margin of error that you can actually say, look, it's not colonial, so something else is going on there. Hmm. Very interesting. Um. Okay, so you've got a technique for dating. You've got a group of people that are really doing real research. What was the breakthrough moment when you said, I got to kind of do this, you know, maybe almost full time. Um, It was, it was pretty quick. I mean, obviously I was not in a position um, professionally to give up my practice and do this full time. Thankfully uh, I'm at that position. Now I, I, I basically closed down my law practice a a few years ago because the books have done well enough to, so I can support myself and pay my bills. But right away, I was pretty, pretty charged up about this. I, you know, between doing the research, between realizing the connection to the Knights Templar and all the stuff that was going on in the European side, um, being involved, uh, learning about NERA and meeting other researchers who were doing similar things in other areas, it came together pretty quick meeting Scott Walter and, 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 and seeing how much progress he was making, it came together pretty quick. So that within, within probably that first year, I, you know, I knew there was something going on here. I was, I'm, I'm not, it's funny because people think that because I believe there were explorers here before Columbus, that I'm one of these conspiracy theorists that I'll, you know, that I like all these different conspiracies and I, and I really don't, I'm, I'm a fairly conservative guy. You know, I don't really subscribe to many, you know, non-traditional beliefs. I'm open-minded to things. But, you okay, know, hang, sort of Michael, uh, Michael uh, David, hang on. We have to yeah. take a break. <clears throat> You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is David Brody. We're talking ancient archaeology on the North American continent in good old New England, where a long time later, the American experiment was born. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, the other side of midnight, the end of January. One month in 2021. Gone. My guest this morning is David Brody. We're talking about ancient archaeology. Folks who were here before us. Long before us. How come they didn't... I mean, like, how come it didn't stick? How come someone didn't inhabit or colonize or, you know, inhabit this, this continent long before, you know, 16, whenever the pilgrims came? How come it waited until then, when for centuries, from all the evidence, it's apparent we, our, our ancestors who came over from Europe in the, you know, um, just a, you know, a couple, three centuries ago, we're not the first. David, you want to talk about evidence? Why don't we start with some of the evidence? Because it's really impressive. Uh, do you want me to answer your question? How come, how come none of them stayed? Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I yeah let's, let's start there, okay? Yeah, because I, I, would, I would argue that some of them probably did. We know that one of the first things that um, when, when the earliest explorers came to settled in Rhode Island, you know, they were kicked out of um, Mass, uh, Massachusetts because they weren't, you know, strict enough with their religion. Uh, diary entries talk about Narragansett babies born with blue eyes and blonde hair. And I would argue that probably is a vestige of earlier Norse, um, you know, habitation or visitation. And then I think, and we get. I'll yeah, get and this when and, and when, when I remember getting into this back around the Kensington Stone, when that kind of caught my attention decades ago, there was this whole idea of the Mandan Indians, blonde, blue-eyed. That, oh my gosh, Richard, you, you took the words literally out of my mouth because I'm going to get into that with the Roman um, uh, evidence. We find a lot of it in the Ohio River Valley and the Mandan tribe, although they lived in the Dakotas when Lewis and Clark visited them. Earlier, they lived in the Ohio River Valley, and I think if you play, if, if you really look at it carefully and look at all the evidence, I think the Mandan tribe may be the residue of that Roman exploration I'll talk about later ah. in the second century. 
Okay. So where I end up with that, you, 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 you your, your intuition is too sharp. You, you got to the end before we got to the beginning. But you're well, that you see, one of the prerequisites of this show is I have to be able to read the minds of my guests. So <sighs> anyway, um, let's do this in, in, in reverse. Let's be chronological, but in reverse. Let's start with the evidence. For, okay. Not Roman, so, but later, and then I work our way back. How, as you went through this and found more stuff, what stuck out? Uh, stuck out. What stood out to you that really, kind of, as a, as an attorney, solidified the case? We're not the first. I think the the um, the combination of Scott Walter's analysis of the Kensington runestone. Again, there has to be an explanation. It, it's either in the case of that stone, it was either a hoax in the 1890s or it was authentic. There's really no other option. There was, Binary. There was nobody else carving runestones in the 1700s, let's say. It doesn't make any sense. And, and once you eliminate the possibility of, of, the, of the farmer, Ullman, uh, hoaxing this based on Scott's weathering analysis, now it's sort of left with it is what it says it is, not to mention all the other evidence that backs it up. But to me, that that sort of was such a you know, from a scientific point of view, Scott likes to say it's only black and white in science. It's one or the other. There's not a lot of gray area. I, I live in the gray area with law and arguing cases and preponderance of evidence and 5149 and all that stuff. But in science, it's really just one or the other. And, and if you have, a, if you have a, a solid scientific analysis, you're either right or you're wrong. It's either one or it's the other. And once you get to that point, the story has to be consistent with that. So Scott's scientific analysis of the Kensington runestone, to me, basically kicked the door down of all this. And now we start looking at all the other artifacts. They can come in afterwards. You start saying, okay, once we know these guys were here. And look, let's back up for a second. This is the other thing that really got to me. We know those guys were here. We know the Norse were here in the 11th century from the Norse sagas, the Icelandic sagas, Leif Erikson. You know, we know that happened. There's no doubt about that. The, even the even the archaeologists, after being dragged kicking and screaming up to Lonsell Meadows in Newfoundland in the <laughs> 1960s, even they admit that the Norse came over here. So, and, we've got and them who, in, who, who, in who, who, not that far down the coast to go Nova Scotia and then New England. And in fact, by the way, even the archaeologists agree the Lonsell Meadow site is a stopover point, and that Vinland the site of the settlement was further south, at least as far south as New Brunswick or Nova Scotia. So we've got them literally on the border of Maine and probably further south. So once we've got them here 500 years before Columbus, why would it be so surprising that other Europeans followed them over here? You, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about um, visitation, uh, NASA visitation, I remember watching Star Trek as a kid with my dad to, to boldly go where no one has gone before, to seek out new life and new civilization. <laughs> That's what these people are all about. They were already here. They, others knew how to get here. There was really good economic reasons to make the crossing. They didn't think they were going to fall off the end of the earth. It's a, that's a myth. So like, what, to me, the surprising thing would have been, Richard, if nobody came over here after the Norse, and before Columbus, it was almost 500 years. But see, that's the position that? of every textbook you'll read or every you know academic journal. Or It's like there's this split, <clears throat> where have I heard that before, between reality 
and the fiction that academia has been selling us for hundreds of years. Richard, I'm going to tell you a true story. I was in second grade in Laconia, New Hampshire at Pleasant Street School. Mrs. North was my teacher, and I raised my little hand because she put a timeline on the board, and I asked this very question. I said, how come nobody came here after the Vikings, is what she called them, and before Columbus? And she looked at me with a smile, one of those knowing smiles your second grade teacher gives you, and she said, I don't know, David, but maybe someday you can answer that question. <laughs> and, I always, <laughs> and so here I am. God bless Mrs. North 50 years later. Wow. And, you know, trying to answer that question. Um, but so this is the kind of stuff, you know, you ask me, what, what, what's the thing that sort of got me? It wasn't really just one thing, but there was five or six really big things that hit me over the head saying, we just don't have the, we're not looking at this the right way. That, that if you just sort of step back and, and, and I give a lot of lectures, I do a lot of radio shows like this. And almost universally, once you present it all to people, they say, well, yeah. That makes perfect sense that, that somebody came after the Vikings, after the Norse. Why wouldn't they have? But see, Again, you, didn't, we, you didn't hear about it. What's written about? Because it's like your favorite fishing hole. You're not going to give it away. Mm-hmm. There was economic advantages to coming back and forth. So people kept it secret. But that doesn't mean they weren't doing it. Hmm. I wonder if that's the only reason they kept it secret. Anyway, evidence, evidence. Yes. Let's get specific. Nitty gritty. Evidence. List some of the evidence. Well, I've given I've given you a bunch. I've given you the carbon dating of the Newport Tower. I've given you Scott's uh, weathering analysis on the boat stone and the Kensington runestone. And if we move into the Ro- the Roman artifacts, we talked about optically stimulated luminescence testing that that's ongoing now. But a couple of those Roman artifacts, one that was found, if, if you want to go to uh, artifact seven, this okay. was found a terracotta head in Mexico City was found beneath the floor of one of the Aztec pyramids and dates back to a, a 11th, 12th century, pre, the important thing, date on that is pre-Columbus, the layer of soil. So we know that that wasn't brought over post-Columbus. The head was tested using optically stimulated luminescence because it's made out of pottery, it's terracotta, pottery basically, and that came back second century AD. Similarly, if you look at artifact number eight, these are amphorae, basically clay jars. They're found in uh, something called the Bay of Jars in Rio de Janeiro. There's literally scores of these jars found. Again, so many that the locals call this the Bay of Jars. These were found in the 1970s, and they too, these are Roman style jugs. What number did you say? This is number eight. Yeah, number eight. Okay. And these were tested at the University of London. Again, thermoluminescence testing. And again, second century. And we're going to find that a huge number of these artifacts that I identified as Roman era artifacts, not only Roman era, they tend to be second century. But just to back up for a second, these are two artifacts, again, Mexico and Brazil. So it's not North America or, or not the United States, at least. But they indicate Roman penetration across the Atlantic in the second century. So we can get into whether the first Romans that came across were blown off course or whether they intended to come. I don't know the answer to that one way or the other, but I do know that at some point it looks like they made their way over here. And then once you've come across, now you're going to come across again. So the, the evidence, again, the well, 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 but don't you have to have the first guys get back? So they tell them there's a place to go. Yes, you do have to, you do have to get back. One of the things that we, we know from looking at the Norse uh, journeys across is 
is when it, when a, I read someplace that a Viking ship or a Norse ship has about 20,000 nails in it holding the ship together. Mm-hmm. And the pounding that that boat takes going across the Atlantic, bang, 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 about half of those nails are dislodged or broken. And so one of the first things you need to do when you get to North America, if you want to get back, is find some bog iron so you can forge yourself some new nails. And so you often find these, these sites in New England they happen to be near bog iron deposits because that's where these people would have settled so they could make nails, repair their ships, and get back. So, for example, Westford, where the Westford Knight and the boats and stuff, the oldest iron forge in New England is in Chelmsford, which is next to Westford. Westford used to be part of Chelmsford. <laughs> and so the pieces I talked about later, the, the evidence pieces, pieces fitting together later on, this is the kind of thing that we find that – right where you'd expect there to be evidence of settlement is where we find, where we find it again, near the bog iron. It makes sense. Hmm. So you're working your way back in time. When did you kind of get interested in the whole Roman thing? So going back, so I I got to the Templars and then from the Templars, I, I, I uh, bounced all the way back to the ancient Phoenicians because I was looking a lot at a site in Southern New Hampshire called America Stonehenge or Mystery Hill. Now, isn't this where and Barry Fell started with his book? He did. He had, did a lot of writing about, about that site, um, uh, tying it to right about the same time period as the Phoenicians. He thought that they were more, uh, he called them Punics, Punic period, but the same, basically the same people Iberian. Um, again, the Phoenicians were the in the Bible, the Carthaginians. They they settled around the rim of the Mediterranean. And the Phoenicians were most known for their seafaring abilities. They had ships three times as big as Columbus, and they were master seafarers and navigators. They navigated by the stars. They could sail at night. My theory has always been that, uh, and we hear this from the from the pioneer re- recounts when they first ended up in the Great Lakes region, asking the Native Americans what happened to all the copper, who took all the copper, and the Native Americans say, well, many, many generations ago, the white man came and, 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 and traded for the copper and mined the copper. You, so mean, you, 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 mean, you mean up near the Great Lakes? Exactly, Lake Superior, um, exactly, that, that area called float copper. And so I've always thought that the, the Phoenicians would have been the likely candidates to come across, we know they were up as far as England trading for tin in Cornwall, and to make copper, you needed uh, 90 or 95 percent copper and five or 10 percent tin. So that's where the tin came from. The copper, there are some copper mines in in Europe and around Europe, but not really enough to fuel the incredible amount of bronze that came out of the Bronze Age. And so the pieces again all fit together, but the Phoenicians would have come across. And, 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 and mined or traded for copper in the Great Lakes region, and that they might have used the site in southern New Hampshire as a stopping off point. So going back all the way to the Phoenicians, and then it's a small step forward because the Romans, who were not really... Yeah, you need to kind of put there. some dates on this because, you know, uh, I've just got a piece of correspondence that says something about Egyptian writing being found near a copper mine in Ohio, put North American exploration even more centuries back in time. 
I've never heard that the, the Egyptians generally did not like to sail. They used the Phoenicians sort of as their merchant marine. We're talking about 3,000 years ago, give or take, 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. That's the Bronze Age. That's the height of the Phoenician exploration. There's a stone that was found called the Paraíba stone in Brazil that talks about King Hiram. King Hiram happens to be the one who helped King Solomon build the Temple of Solomon around 950 B.C., so that Paraíba stone is a Phoenician, we think a Phoenician carving. That stone talks about a Phoenician ship being blown off course, ending up in Brazil. That's about 3,000 years ago. So again, that's part of the, that would be that would be consistent with the Egyptian time mm-hmm. period. Uh, but the Egyptians typically use the Phoenicians to do their their sailing. They, they didn't like to sail. They didn't like to be on the open ocean. I, I thought um, Barry Feld did find hieroglyphs in in his in his book. I don't remember exactly hieroglyphs. I remember he found a lot of what he called ogham, O G H A M, right, right. and that I remember that. That that's a that's a script that he found that we know mostly from the British Isles, Ireland in particular. But he also thought because the Celts who and eventually inhabited Ireland also were down in the Iberian Peninsula, he sort of tied that all together. I don't remember too much Egyptian stuff from Barry Fell. He did find. And others have documented a carving at the America Stonehenge site uh, in the Canaanite script that reads to Baal of the Canaanites. Baal was the sun god. Right. And that's another evidence that I think ties the ancient Phoenicians to that when site. When you There's say America Stonehenge, you're talking about Dennis Stone's, you know, site. Exactly. Okay. Southern New Hampshire, Salem, New Hampshire. Along the Merrimack River at the very beginning of the interview, I talked about how the Merrimack River was sort of the highway into New England in the ancient times. The America Stonehenge site is about six miles from the Merrimack River, and in ancient times it would have been navigable via a smaller stream or river that connected the two sites. Um, again, a high hill. Um, there, there, there's a lot about that site. I don't want to get too into that site because it's not really related to the Romans necessarily, but there's a lot about that site that, that ties it to the Phoenician era. So I think the ancient Phoenicians probably were here and so that's where I, that's that after the Templars, that's where I look next, but it's not a, it's not a big jump to get from the Phoenician era to the Roman era. In fact, the Romans actually who were not a seafaring people after, you know, so had sort of getting their butts kicked during the, during the, um, the, the, the war against the, the Carthaginians, the Phoenicians, the Punic Wars in the third century BC, I believe finally realized they needed to build a Navy and they captured uh, a Carthaginian ship and basically copied the design it's a funny story because they didn't realize they needed to let the wood uh season for a couple of years so they they, they launched the boat and it, of course it sank because the wood was too green and they eventually figured out that they need to let it let it season and they eventually became decent seafarers themselves but they basically copied the the carthaginian the phoenician design of their ships and in fact ended up probably having uh Many of the the captains and the crew members on these ships were probably either captured during that war or descendants of people who were captured during that war. The Roman Empire sort of spread, and it would have been the descendants of the ancient seafaring Phoenicians who ended up sailing these ships for the Romans. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so we're working our way back in time. Um, What got you into the whole... Roman perspective thing because you know 3,000 years is a 
you know, attacked for the Romans. The other stuff is centuries and centuries and centuries ahead of them. What what got you f- kind of focused on Rome being here? It, interesting story, and it, it's something that that I sort of resisted for a while, not not consciously, but just you know, there was always some other things to research. But about ten years ago, a friend of mine from Indiana uh, published a book called "The Graves of the Golden Bear." This is a guy by the name of Rick Osmond. Rick is a Rick lives in, in Indiana and spent a lot of times walking around the woods of India. And he became convinced that there were remains of ancient Roman forts, fortifications spanning the Ohio river Valley. Um, and he, and he started looking into, you know, how did they get here? Am I on the right track? He came up with a theory that the, the Roman ninth legion, which we know up until the early second century was stationed at Hadrian's Wall, the border between England and Scotland, that legion essentially disappeared from history in the early parts of the second century. And Osmond theorized that perhaps for some reason they came across uh, and that they built these Roman fortifications in southern, in the Ohio River Valley, okay? Uh, and, and for a long time, he would say to me, as a matter of fact, at the end of the book, in, in his acknowledgments, he said, Hey Brody, there's a great story to be told here if you want to do some fiction on this. And I and I just never never really had enough to do enough other pieces of evidence to to do the story. And then um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I relocated to Newburyport, Massachusetts, along the shore here on the North Shore. And one of the first things I found is some people were telling me about how after a big storm in Newburyport uh, about four years ago, uh, a husband and wife were out metal detecting. Uh, and, 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 and there's an island, a, bo- uh, a barrier island in Newburyport called Plum Island. It's about nine or 10 miles long. And essentially it's, it's a giant sandbar. And so whenever there's a storm, everything that, that, that could wash ashore from the Atlantic washes ashore on Plum Island. And people go out and they do metal detecting after storms trying to find stuff. This husband and wife found about 25 Roman era coins washing ashore. Uh, and you can see that there's a picture that it's uh, picture number one. It's not a very good picture, obviously, but you can just see that they're, they're Trust me, the Roman era, first, second, third, fourth, fifth century from all over the Mediterranean. But you have to wonder, like, how did how did two dozen Roman era coins wash ashore in Massachusetts? And I started looking around and it turned wait, out. Wait, 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 wait. This coins can't happen. I coins, coins can't wash ashore <laughs> unless they're on a ship. Yeah, unless there's a shipwreck right off of shore and they get disturbed, it's been there for a while. I mean, there's possible stories, but it turns out there are Roman era coins. I, 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 and you see some of them here in these pictures. Beverly, Massachusetts, which is just south on the North Shore, uh, on the other side of Plum Island, Manchester by the Sea, which is also on on uh, on the North Shore, Cumberland, Maine, Marshfield, Massachusetts, which is the South Shore of Massachusetts, even Bethel, Vermont. These Roman era coins are all over the place. And at some point you have to say, well, hold on one second. What are these coins doing here? How did they get here? And you, and you start talking to the professional, the archaeologists, and, and you love some of, this, some of the answers you get. And I can give you a few of them if I have a second, Richard. The one I love the best was, well, it's possible that a seagull picked them up in someplace along the Mediterranean shore and carried them across the Atlantic and then dropped them on our beaches here. And wait, I wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. This, I heard this guy still has a job? 
as the most ridiculous, especially because it wasn't just one or two coins. It was 24 coins. Like what a, what a, what a strong, what a vibrant seagull that must have been. Well, and, he must have had and, a purse. And the other thing you hear a lot is, um, well, maybe coin collectors dropped them on the beach. And I, and I turned to my wife. I said, that makes sense because, honey, you grab the beach blanket and the umbrella. I'll get the cooler and the coin collection, and we can go to the beach together because everybody brings their collectibles to the beach. Their coin to the collection beach. to the beach, of course. Baseball cards, all my you know, the family heirlooms. We always bring that stuff to the beach, so that made no sense. And then the third explanation I heard from somebody, this was actually in a, in a in a court proceeding in Massachusetts to determine the custody of these coins, because technically, when they wash ashore, they belong to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the state, until the state releases custody of them. So you can picture these archaeologists; they have two choices: either they can say, "Wow." Those really are Roman, and they are historically significant, in which case we have to acknowledge the possibility that Romans actually came across, or we have to do some kind of contortion and make up a story that allows us to say they were dropped by the seagull or dropped by the coin collector. <laughs> or in this particular case, they said, well, we heard about grandparents burying coins at the beach for their grandkids to find. That's probably what this is, because I know, Richard, when you go to the beach – you bring Roman coins and bury them for kids to find. No, you would, you might, you might bury nickels, dimes, and quarters for your grandkids to find, but you're not burying Roman era coins. Or a Kennedy half dollar, you know, or a, or a, you know, a gold piece from the 1840s. But uh, so this guy was serious or was he just blowing you off with his thing because he thought you were just, you know, not quite here. this was the court proceeding, the, the 24 coins that were found in 2016. The, the husband and wife had to go to a, a proceeding, not a court proceeding, a, a hearing in front of something called the Underwater Archaeology Board in Massachusetts and ask for permission to keep them. And the only way they could be allowed to keep them was the board had to find that they were of no historical significance. And the only way to do that is to somehow figure out a way that they were unimportant. And so the, 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 the solution to this whole problem was that they basically agreed they were probably left by grandparents who put them there for their grandkids to find. Therefore, it's not historically significant. You can keep the coins. And that's how we end up with the coins in private hands. But again, Occam's razor, which I know you're familiar with, your listeners may not be. Basically, it's a, it's a dictum that says the simplest explanation is usually the right one. To me, the obvious answer is at some point, a Roman ship or ships ended up across here and they got shipwrecked. And during the latest storm, the, the sands shifted, the ship shifted. There were coins in that ship someplace that washed ashore during the latest storm. And that's how we end up with eight or 10 different examples of Roman coins washing ashore along the Massachusetts coastline. And so that's, that's sort of where it got me started on this was I, again, we, my wife and I moved here and all of a sudden there's these stories Everybody in the area knows these stories of people finding Roman coins, and everyone goes down to the beach and goes metal detecting after a storm because not just coins, they find you know, evidence of, of, of old shipwrecks. And I, I don't know how old the shipwrecks are. I can't say that they're Roman era, but, but the coins definitely are. I mean, the great thing about a coin is the date's right on there, and if the, you can't read the date, you can at least see the picture of the, the profile of the, of the emperor and figure out what emperor he is and what year he ruled, and then you have the date that way. So that's the great thing about coins. They're easy to date. Hmm. 
Very, very, very interesting. Uh, we're coming up to a break here. So um, tease us with something to take us across the next couple, three minutes. Yeah, so it wasn't, it's, you know, it's not just coins. So I started looking, you know, started going into the archives. The group I belong to, New England Antiquities Research Association, has great archives. And I found a Roman era shield that was pulled out of the South Shore in Massachusetts, a Roman era oil lamp. Uh, on a river west of Boston, uh, uh, more amphora. We talked about the amphora found in Brazil, but these are off the coast of Castine Bay in Maine. Um, again, Roman, you know, experts analyze them and say these are definitely Roman era artifacts. And so remember earlier, we talked about how we had sci hard scientific evidence that the Romans were here based on the, the artifacts found in Mexico and Brazil. And now we've got more artifacts in New England. And then after the break, I'll take you out to to the Ohio River Valley where Rick Osmond found the what he thought were Roman era forts. We can look at some of the, the artifacts that were found in the Roman era in the, in the Ohio River Valley that are Roman era uh, and, and tie that in. And that will get us eventually to the Mandan tribe, which, Richard, you you, you, you sort of blew our surprise at the end. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that will eventually get us to that. But we can, after the break, we can start talking about some of the stuff out in the Ohio River Valley. Okay. My guest this morning is David Brody, citizen scientist, citizen archaeologist, and an attorney, so he knows how to order evidence, and we're going to have a lot more before the end of the evening. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available 
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And we are back. My guest of the morning, David Brody. We're talking about something which, again, does not appear in the textbooks. And the evidence, really, it's overwhelming. David, evidence, evidence. Regale us with evidence. Right. So we talked a lot about the evidence in New England. Um, and I, I had, honestly, Richard, when I first looked into this, I, I, you know, I found the coins and I thought that was probably going to be all there was. Um, I oftentimes go down rabbit holes, hoping to be able to find enough material evidence to write a book about. And often I'm disappointed because not every, you know, not every, um, opportunity blossoms into a, into enough, uh, substance to, to write a whole book about. But this time, uh, I, I, I was amazed at all the evidence I found, uh, especially in the Ohio River Valley, because you wouldn't think necessarily the Romans could have penetrated into that area. We can talk a little bit about how and why they would have done it, but let's talk first about the artifacts. And so right away, I mentioned Rick Osmond's book about the uh, fortresses in the Ohio River Valley, the Roman fortresses. But the thing that I found was um, an archaeological dig done by the uh, University of Tennessee. Let me read a, a 1989 Associated Press article. This is uh, ruins north of Louisville, Kentucky. Quote, excavations conducted by the anthropology department at University of Tennessee concluded that one of the structures known as the Old Stone Fort was built in the third century. This Mm. is one of the fortifications that Osmond was talking about that were Roman era, Roman style. And so this was, this was beyond just, you know, Rick Osmond walking in the woods. This is a, a, a university anthropology department and you and i talked earlier about how mainstream academic types don't usually like to admit these kinds of things and yet they really sort of had no choice but to do so in that case hang on hang on hang on even if they came out and said it was third century did they say it was roman or did they say it was native americans no they they, they are correct um it was pretty clearly not Native American just because the stones were worked and, um, you know, the design was, was reflective of Roman tech, uh, Roman, you know, battle technique and strategy. So you're right. They didn't actually come out and say that. And, and that probably goes to what you were saying earlier, that there is a conspiracy of silence where they're not going to actually come out and, and say that. But the fact that they dated it to the third century to me was really important because Remember, Osmond says that the, the Ninth Legion disappeared in the second century. So we're looking for stuff around that timeline. And that got me looking at other artifacts in the area. And we can go, I, uh, there's a, a Roman era anchor found uh, further downriver in Kentucky. And that, I believe, is artifact number, let me see if I can find it on the number six. Yeah, uh, 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 this is a, a style of anchor, triangular anchor. It's about, it's 
much bigger than it looks in that picture. It's about the size of a trash can you'd find in a park. What's interesting about this, it's again, it's, it's Roman Mediterranean style. It wasn't found on the river. It was found about a quarter mile away from the Ohio River. And that's an interesting, interesting clue because it turns out one of the first things the colonists did when they settled that area is they redirected the riverway. And so this is on the historic path of the river, which tells us it's a really old now, wait, wait, wait. When you, know, you say colonists, which colonists are we talking about? The, I'm sorry, we're talking about the, the English colonists in the early 1800s. Much later, so, much, much, much later. Much later. Okay. But, so this, uh, this is found in the historic path of the river. This, again, this is one of those cases, again, where you, you look at things and say, okay, the, the evidence has to add up. Why would this ancient anchor be so far away from the river? Well, it turns out it's not. It turns out the <laughs> river came before. So there always has to be an answer to these things. Right. We can also see now. Hang on. Uh, the, the 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 hole at the top is obviously where you put the rope through to keep it on the ship exactly. when you throw it overboard. Exactly. Um, and you just don't you don't see this. You know, it's it's it probably weighs around four hundred pounds. There's just no reason to have it. Um, there's no reason to have it there other than it is what it is it's, a, it's a, you know it's been looked at by experts it's consistent and similar to all other roman Medi i'm sorry mediterranean style roman era stone anchors that's just just what it is so um more to the point is artifact number five which is something called the brandenburg stone and you can see that stone has welsh script on it not oh yeah i recognize welsh like script every day <laughs> how do we know <laughs> it looks like ogham it looks a little bit like Ogham. Experts have looked at it and say it looks it's it's a Welsh script, um, and that's important because um, one of the possibilities behind some of these artifacts is is it could be Prince Madoc, who's a, a Welsh prince from the this competing theories, either the uh, 12th century or the 7th century. Um, the problem with with that is we have all these coins that uh, in the Ohio River Valley, which we haven't looked at, but they're 2nd century. The idea of it being Welsh, and by the way, it's a it's it's sort of a landmarker. It's a it divides land and 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 allocates it to the heirs of whoever carved this, which is a very sort of British old world style type thing to do. Was this kind Remember of like a ninth like a like a like a boundary stone? Exactly, exactly. Um, the, remember the ninth legion was based, even though they were Roman, based uh, out of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, Roman legion, but they were they they spent decades in Great Britain in England, and so it makes perfect sense that at least some of their members would have been Welsh and speaking Welsh. And in fact, one of the other things that we find in that area is um, there's a there's I mentioned earlier George Rogers Clark, who's the brother of the Lewis and Clark Clark, who was actually the founder of Clarksville, Indiana. It's a town across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And this is where we find a lot of these artifacts, a lot of these coins. But he wrote in his, in his journal about finding armor clad skeletons that had ancient Welsh writings on it. So again, we have Welsh, but again, armor skeletons near the fort, all this stuff. And it's, it all tends to, to be around the second century. And so we have, um, I have coins. I I'll give you coins. Uh, let me see here. I don't think I gave you any 
points from the Ohio River Valley, but I guess I did. Number three um, is is a bunch of coins from the uh, Kentucky, Indiana, around Clarksville, Indiana, Indiana area. These are, again, um, 19 coins that were found uh, about 10 years ago in that area. Again, Roman era, second century Roman coins. How did they get there? So, Boy, those grandparents are Roman... really busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, look at all this off. evidence, and it's like a brick wall between you guys doing real research and academia that says, nope, nope, Columbus was the first. And, and the, reason, the reason why for so long it was easy to dismiss this stuff is because, again, it was always just one, one collection of coins in Indiana. Okay, we can, we can you know, we're not going to change history books over one thing. But when we start combining the ones in Indiana with the ones from Kentucky and the ones from Tennessee and the ones in Vermont and Massachusetts and Maine and, and, and Maryland, and again, the Internet allows us to connect those dots. Now it's a lot harder to explain these things away because there's so many of them. And this is why I think finally we're starting to make some headway on putting these arguments together and redirecting the ocean liner. So we've got these coins and these artifacts and these fortifications and these anchors all up and down the Ohio River Valley with a cluster of them around Louisville. And there's a story, and we mentioned it earlier. You mentioned it, the Mandan tribe. That's where the Mandan tribe used to be settled right along that river. Eventually they moved their way north along the Missouri to the Dakotas. But I've often wondered if the Mandan, or not often, in the past year I've often wondered, once I sort of stumbled into this, that maybe it's not the Welsh Indians, as some people say, maybe it's the Roman Indians would happen to have Welsh members in it. So maybe it's the same story just a little earlier, but maybe it's this Roman incursion around the second century that led to the Mandan tribe. And that gets us into all those Burroughs cave artifacts, you know, the cluster of them further up the Ohio river, Ohio river. And those are artifacts again, dating to around the second century Mediterranean, different cultures uh, that could easily be explained by again, the ninth legion coming over here. So, so that's that I took it that far. And then because when you're writing fiction, it's always really good idea to have treasure. I started looking back at the Ninth Legion and saying, okay, what were they doing here? What were they doing in North America? They didn't just come across here for no reason. I mean, the entire legion disappears from the face of, of Europe, no historical record. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Then I found evidence, sources talking about the Ninth Legion leaving England in the early parts of the second century and being reassigned to Jerusalem to help put down something called the Bar Kopka uprising. This is right around the year 132 AD. Richard, I know you know the history. The, 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 I'll explain it a little bit to the listeners that there was a Jewish uprising around 70 AD that was put down by the Romans and eventually the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. It was rebuilt called King Herod's Temple. That was destroyed. Um, that was around 70 AD. And then there was a second uprising led by uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Simon Barkopka. Uh, mm-hmm. That was about two generations later. And eventually that was put down as well. 
But it turns out that the Roman Ninth Legion was one of the legions that was assigned to Jerusalem. And then after that is when they disappeared. And so I started wondering, well, you know, you've got, you've got all these temple treasures, all the things that were kept in the temple and then probably hidden before the invasion occurred, before the revolt was put down. Um, perhaps the Ninth Legion either came across, stumbled upon these temple treasures, or was, was, were, or they were, or somehow people ransomed their lives by giving this treasure to the Roman Legion. And the Legion said, you know what, we're not bringing this stuff back to Rome. There's, and I've read an estimate from something from um, a book by the name of Robert Feathers, who estimates about $1.5 billion in today's dollars of treasure that was hidden during the Bar Kopka uprising. So you divide that up, say, 100 ways. Maybe they decided to come to America and, and as a safe haven uh, to sort of keep their wealth and not have to share it with the Roman authorities. So that's sort of a fun little twist. And there's some artifacts that, that back that up that we can get into if you want. But um, that, that, that's sort of where I, I went which, on, on, a, on a bit of a lark because of the fictional side of it and ended up saying, you know what? Maybe there's something going on there. Hmm. Uh, David, I hate to interrupt. This is fascinating, but I am feeling really, really ill. It's suddenly come on. It's like I don't want to kind of throw up on my keyboard. <clears throat> it's that bad. So Kintia and, and Keith are going to take over. I'm going to go see if I can take something to make this go away. If I don't, I'm I'm so appreciative. We will do this as a full show later, you know, when I'm back. But uh yeah, I'm, I'm feel I'm, better. I, uh, thank you. I, I I don't know where this came from, but it's I've been trying to hang on, but it's hard. So, uh, Kinti, are you available? I think she's setting up her microphone. Okay. So, Keith, um, I'll, I'll just Richard, feel better. Thank you for having me. It was it was a pleasure. Oh, David, um, this has been fascinating, but I'm afraid I can't really go on right now. So, Keith, take it away. Yeah. Okay, so Keith, I'll just I'll just continue with that. So that that I, I looked at that possibility of of this Roman Ninth Legion perhaps uh, coming to America via you know from England via Jerusalem because they were there to put down the, the the revolt, and I found some fascinating artifacts that seem to uh, have Jewish themes that tie into that. So, for example, uh, let me see if I gave you this as one of the artifacts in the um, yes, uh, artifact number 10 is something called the Bat Creek Stone, which is found in Tennessee. This was found by a Smithsonian archaeologist. So we know the provenance of that is, is undisputed. It was, again, found by one of Smithsonian's own people. And for a long time, it was displayed upside down. It was believed to be uh, a form of uh, ancient Cherokee writing, Paleo-Cherokee. And then in the 1950s, a Jewish scholar saw it on display and said, that's upside down. And they flipped it over and said, that's actually a, a Paleo Hebrew, a second century form of Hebrew. And what that stone says, and what's interesting is the stone is definitively dated to the second century. We know that because uh, some, some artifacts were found with it were carbon dated to the second century. So we know the stone is second century. It was in a burial mound. What that stone says is... Um, let me get the exact translation. I don't want to get this wrong. It reads, uh, hold on, I apologize. A comet for the Jews is what that translation was. 
Now, that's fascinating because I mentioned earlier that Simon Bar Kopka was the leader of the revolt uh, in Jerusalem that the Ninth Legion put down. Bar Kopka, the name means son of star, which is another way of saying a comet. And so the battle cry of the Jewish revolt at that time was a comet for the Jews. So here we have an incredible coincidence, or I think more than that, the very battle cry that we had uh, in Jerusalem during the 132 to 136 AD uprising, we have that carved on a stone found in Tennessee dating to the second century. So that tells me that not only did the Ninth Legion come across from Jerusalem to America, probably with the temple treasures, but it looked to me like part of that deal was, hey, we are the, the you know, some of the some of the rebellious re rebelling Jews of the of Jerusalem. Knowing the gig was up, said, "Hey, we want to buy our freedom. We've got the temple treasures. We'll let you have them, but you got to take us with you." And they came across. So we've got this Back Creek stone, and in addition, second artifact, and that's number eleven, is something called the. Uh, hold on, let me find it. There it is. It's, it's the, uh, the Decalogue stone was found in Newark, New York. Your, your, view, your listeners can see that there. That's, again, Paleo-Hebrew written around the border of that stone. Uh, that's a picture of Moses. We see his name above his head. And the wooden platform that was holding that Decalogue stone up, again, it was found in a burial mound, dates to between 85 and 135 A.D., carbon dated. Again, right around that same time period as the uprising. It's the Ten Commandments, basically. Again, another Jewish artifact. There's no reason why the Romans of the second century would have had any interest in Jewish or Hebrew, Jewish artifacts or an ability to write in Hebrew. So that's the second artifact that we have that ties this, these Ohio River Valley artifacts to, to a Jewish presence. And then the third thing we have is, um, let me find out what number that is on the website, which is our, number 12. This is a drawing of something we, uh, a drawing of a fort that was done by the Army Corps of Engineers. It was drawn in 1823. So again, we, we, can, we can rely on it because the Army Corps of Engineers, obviously, they're just drawing things. Uh, this is the outline, the, the ruins of a fort uh, in the Ohio River Valley. And you can see that that fort design is, is really compelling. It's basically comprised of two different things. On the top, we see what looks like an oil lamp design. And on the bottom, we have a nine-armed candelabra, with the middle arm being the tallest. We call it the Hanukkah fort because the nine-armed candelabra, nine candelabra is a menorah. It's part of the Hanukkah celebration, the Jewish celebration. Uh, that celebration is, uh, commemorates the miracle of the, there only being enough oil to light the holy lamp for one night, but it stayed lit for nine, uh, eight, I'm sorry, eight, which is why we have the eight candles on the menorah plus one extra one. So it's called the shamas that lights the other ones. But basically the menorah commemorates that holiday. And of course the oil lamp also commemorates that holiday. So we combine the oil lamp and the menorah and we have this fort design. Now, why in the world would either Native Americans or Romans design a fort to commemorate a Jewish holiday. So we have these three different second century artifacts in the Ohio River Valley that seem to speak to a Jewish presence. And then in addition to all that, David, we have, David. yes, <laughs> I'm in here. You're, you're, you're really like 
on it, point on it. And I'd like to just go a little more depth into some of the things you were saying, because sure. you're presenting so much wonderful information and I'm, you know, want to take a moment to savor each nugget here. So I want to recap a couple things and make sure I'm putting the dots together right. What yes. I understand you saying is that there's a presence, appears to be Hebrew Jewish, some kind of influence, that has come over. And you were mentioning also the Templars and Mary Magdalene. And what was going through my mind is that, you know, one of the things you were saying was, or Richard was saying, is why didn't they want people to know? So, okay, yes, we're going to hide it, but we're hiding what? Maybe it's more than we're hiding treasure. Maybe we're hiding the connections of a global um, force that was uh, a group of people that were connected and were working, in a sense, secretly, like the Templars, and these artifacts have been held back in the Smithsonian and so on because the global elite don't want us to know what's going on. They don't want us to know our history. And, of course, there is the laziness, like you mentioned, of academia. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about who you have come to discover these people to be, what their, what was their driving force. I, is it more than just, oh, we're going to find a new country, we're going to find treasure, or is it something more? So I, th- I think that um, the tie-in to the Templars and Mary Magdalene and stuff, this is a little early for Christianity. And now it's 132 to 136 AD. You know, Christianity obviously had begun, but it really was in its infancy. I'm not sure that we would have seen them taking taking the journey across and I think it's a little early for a Christian influence, but mm-hmm. I think what was happening is remember that the Jews had, had been in Jerusalem since King Solomon's uh, temple, even before that, you know, probably about a thousand years. And then Herod destroyed their temple in 70 AD and, and, and they hid their treasures, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden menorah, the 10 commandments, the rod of Aaron, the pot of manna, uh, they've hidden all these things away, not to mention the gazillions of dollars of gold that they had accumulated from King Solomon's time. They hid that all away. Uh, and then they, they were thinking about rebuilding a couple generations later, and, and, and they got knocked down again. And that was sort of the final time. And, and, and during that uprising, this is the Bar Kokhba uprising, the Romans basically said, we're done with you guys. We're tired of you trying to um, revolt. We let you stay the first time. This time you're gone. We're kicking you out. We're, and this is why there are so many Jews that spread across Europe during that time period. They were basically kicked out of Jerusalem. So we've got Do this you group. Think that uh, perhaps is there a possibility that Jews and Romans had mingled and that yeah, yeah, the, Rome, yeah. the Romans that had mingled with the Jews said, well, we're going to split off and go our own way. I think that, I think that's what happened. I think that some kind of deal was made, whether it was, formal or, or informal, long-term or short-term, that the ninth members of the Ninth Legion who were in Jerusalem, you know, somehow 
hooked up with survivors of the Jewish revolt who had access to the temple treasures, and a deal was made where collectively they said, let's take these temple treasures and all this wealth, get the heck out of Dodge. We don't want the Roman authorities to have this stuff. We want to keep it ourselves. The Jews wanted it for religious purposes. The Romans wanted it because it was gold and silver <laughs> and just human nature. And, and somebody said, I know a place we can go and hide and no one's going to find us. And that place ended up being the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that story at least holds together. I'm not sure I have those details right, but it right. at least makes, it, it provides an explanation for how all these Roman artifacts, how all these Jewish artifacts, how everything dates around the second century, which is when these people disappeared. It, it, it sort of holds the whole story together. Mm-hmm. And, again, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned that the simplest answer is almost often the the correct one. So when we think about different war zones, you notice the soldiers uh, taking partners with the city, you know, with the people that are living there. It's common for soldiers to land up marrying women of the, of the country that they're occupying. So it could have been as simple as that. You know, families being created that didn't want to be split up. And I, and I think that definitely happened. We, we talked about uh, the Mandan tribe. I think eventually when, when these Romans and or Jews collectively came over here, eventually they probably married into the Native American tribes. And that's where we get this, this Mandan tribe. The, 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 they, were, they were known as the White Indians. We have, um, and I could go into more detail on this as we go along, but essentially uh, witnesses talking about how this tribe was different than all the other tribes. They're not they're not quote unquote Indian. They don't look the same. They don't talk the same. They don't have the same kind of housing arrangements. They don't have the same kind of religion. They're totally different. They look to be quote unquote European to observers. And I think that may be a result of these Romans and Jews coming over and intermingling with the local tribes in the area. And that's what we ended up with. So that yeah, was that the makes future melting pot. America has been the what, melting, a melting pot. pot for as long as we can go back, huh? Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and one other thing I just want to mention quickly, I know we're going up to break, but the other thing that we find in the Ohio River Valley is actually coins, Bar Kopka coins. There were the, the, the Jews during the uprising minted coins with Bar Kopka's name on them. And those coins, those very coins are found in the Ohio River Valley. Oh so we know that the artifacts have his own coins. How did they <laughs> get there? Not just any random Roman coins, mm-hmm. the Bar Kopka coins. So that's crazy. That is. That is. I'm I know we're coming up on break, but maybe you have a couple minutes to say a little bit more about when the Jewish Romans were leaving, like what kind of plans they might have made, how they would have left. And I'm, as yeah, a, so, as a writer, I'm so curious how you saw it. Yeah, this was a, to me this is all just one of the the desperation of war basically you know, the Romans capture a bunch of, it would probably be the priestly family, the families that were charged with caring for the temple and its treasures. We call them the, the, the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the Levi tribe, the Levites. That was their charge. And so they would have been the last. Guess what? <laughs> we're at that break time. So we're going to come back to that story after the break. Great. Sounds good. Thank you.
hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research, real data, real science. The other side of midnight.com. other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is David Brody. He's bringing to us an amazing adventure story about early America, and it's based on a book of his called Romerica. This is Kinthea. I'm standing in for Richard, who had to step away. Hopefully, he'll be able to come back. But um, for the moment, here I am, and I'm happy to be with you all and explore this. Uh, amazing topic. David, you were just giving us a story about how they might have, the Jewish Romans the, during wartime back in the early 13th century had come here, and I'd love for you to continue that story. Sure. So so we know that during the first century revolt, the, the King Herod's War revolt, that one of the things that happened was a bunch of the members of the priestly families that these would have been the, the, the of the 12 tribes. One of them is called the, the Levite tribe, the Levites. They were, the Levites are in charge of the temple and maintaining, uh, collecting the taxes and, and running the sacrifices and also maintaining the temple itself and, and caretaking for all the treasures. So they would have been the ones who sort of were, were the last holdouts. We know that during the, original uprising in 70 AD in the first century that uh, a bunch of the families were taken hostage and essentially ransomed their, their freedom by giving um, the, the, the general who became 
and for Vespusian, uh, huge amounts of, of, of money that allowed him to sort of fuel his rise to the uh, emperorship. Okay, but they basically bought their way out. And so my theory is that the same thing happened in, in, in the second revolt, the Bar Kopka revolt. People may know the story of the holdout at Masada, which was uh, oh, yeah. a fortress where uh, a group of Jews held out for a long time and eventually committed mass suicide, not letting themselves be captured. And, and people have probably seen movies about that. And, and the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, is named after the Masada holdout. This is all during the same time period. But in Jerusalem, it's possible that once again, the priestly families, uh, unwilling to commit suicide like their brethren at Masada, cut a deal with the invading Roman or, 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 the, or the Roman forces that, that basically put down the revolt. And in my theory, it's the ninth Roman legion and said, Hey, we want to buy our freedom. We've got all these treasures, uh, gold and silver and whatnot. You can have that, but you have to let us keep the religious artifacts, the 10 commandments, the Ark of the covenant, the golden menorah, the rod of Aaron, whatever else they might've wanted. Uh, and also you need to give us, you need to take us with you. We, we can't stay here. Obviously, you know, we're, we're going to get killed if we stay here. Other, other forces are going to attack us. And so the decision was made collectively to, to get out of there, to, to go someplace where they weren't going to get chased down. Oh, okay. Uh, Wait a second here. You just said something that like ding, ding, ding went off in my head. So if they're making this deal that they get to keep the religious artifacts, which are priceless and important world around, are you suggesting that they might have brought them here? Right. So one of the things I do in my story in Romerica, you know, it's it's a it's it's chock full of history, but it's also a thrill ride. It's, it's supposed to be, you know, it's it's a, it's a thriller. It's an action adventure story, and so you need to have. Um, you know, villains and, 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 and people motivated to find treasures and that kind of stuff. And so one of the things I do in that story is, is the possibility that the golden menorah, this massive golden menorah, there's a replica of it in Jerusalem. You can go see it to this day. Um, that's specified in the book of Exodus, that God tells the Jews to build this giant menorah, that that is one of the artifacts that sort of in play, that maybe that was brought over here and is, someplace in America, either in one of these Roman shipwrecks or someplace else. Uh, and, and that's definitely one of the possibilities. And I think if we're going to talk about that, you know, basically what happened was all these things were in Jerusalem during this time period. And then they all disappeared. And I'm talking about the temple treasures, the, something called the table of shrewbread. There's, there's a bunch of listed treasures uh, in the, in the book of Exodus and in the old Testament that are in the in King Solomon's temple, and then they disappear during the Roman era. And some of them we know the Romans took back to Rome with them, and they paraded through the streets. And there's something called the Arch of Titus, which is a carving showing some of these artifacts. But most, even those, have been lost to history. So all of this stuff is gone, and it has to be someplace. And so in my story, and this is fiction. I'm not telling you this is really the case, but in my story. I fictionalized the possibility that maybe some of that stuff ended up coming over here uh, because, again, there is strong evidence to indicate that there's a Jewish and Roman presence here in the second century. Oh, my. The hunt is on now. Ah, there we go. Your book and like, oh, let's go find it. 
get your get your you get your metal detector and set it to uh what about the not the non-ferrous you don't want the ferrous you don't want the iron you want the gold the non-ferrous right uh-huh right but like large objects like the ark of the covenant or something are there areas where they could be like hidden away or do you think this was all in a shipwreck i mean did it make it to land safely or do we know Oh, I, you know, I have no idea. We're, we're really way off into into just speculation right now. So, uh-huh. you know, we're, we're sort of playing. The, the further out we go on this, the, the, the thinner the ice gets. I'm comfortable saying that the Romans were here. I'm comfortable saying that that they probably had a Jewish presence with them because so many artifacts are in Hebrew, and there's just no reason why the Romans would have done Hebrew religious artifacts. But as far as the temple treasures, just I'm sort of filling in, you know, trying to put the pieces together, but. If we've got a hundred, a hundred piece jigsaw puzzle, we only have probably fifteen or twenty pieces we're looking at oh. now. Either eighty or eighty-five. We're really just guessing at. Um, so let's fun, come back fun, to that fort you were talking about. The fort is here, I'm right? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? Continue. The fort you were talking about, number three. You were yes, the fort. The fort. So yeah, that's that, something that, very tangible, right? There's a lot of a lot of stuff that's very very tangible, the, 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 and, and and a lot of it's been specifically dated to that time period. So it's not like we have the artifacts and we're guessing that you know they might have been here during that time period. That fort is dated uh, specifically to the third century. So uh, you know uh, maybe it's a little bit after they would have gotten here, but it might have taken them a while to build that particular fort. But a lot of the artifacts I talked about in the first hour that were dated with optically stimulated luminescence testing are specifically dated to the second century. The the coins are second century. The mm. carbon dating on the wooden piece that the Ten Commandment stone sat on was second century. So there's there's so many things that are specific to the second century. That's why I tie this to the Bar Kopka uprising, which also was, of course, second century. Wow. So... All right, so they come here, and hmm, I'm curious how you're going to weave the story of this tribe because. Right. So let me let me read a little bit about the tribe. So the, the so the it's called the Mandan tribe, and and some of your listeners may have, have heard of them before because they're pretty pretty well known, pretty famous. The um, President Jefferson, when he took office. He organized the Lewis and Clark expedition and specifically said to them, go find the Mandan tribe. I've heard about this tribe of quote unquote white Indians. People say they speak Welsh. People say they have European customs and manners and and the appearance. And Jefferson himself was Welsh. So he was very curious about this possibility that there were Welsh Indians. Let me read to you something that, um, uh, a man by the name of George Catlin, who was a lawyer turned painter. He lived for six years with the tribes in what they call the Western tribes that we would call the upper plains today. But he went out and studied the Indians and lived with them for six years. When he talks, when he wrote about the, the, the Mandan, he wrote, quote, I am fully convinced that the Mandan have sprung from some other origin than that of the other native American tribes. A stranger in the Mandan village is at once almost disposed to exclaim, these are not Indians. There are a great many of these people whose skins are white, with hazel, with gray, and with blue eyes. 
So right away, we see something going on there. And, and remember, this tribe at the time, not during the time of Jefferson's presidency, but at the time the Romans would have been here, this tribe lived right along the Ohio River, right where all these forts are, right where all these coins are found, right where all these artifacts are found. And so those pieces fit together very nicely that this tribe may be the residue of this group of Roman and Jewish explorers and settlers who came here. And I'm guessing if they were soldiers, there probably were not very many women. And so mm-hmm. they would have had to start taking Native American wives and eventually maintain a lot of their cultural practices, a lot of their genetic makeup, a lot of their religious practices, and that that's what we saw in the early 1800s when oh. Jefferson, Catlin, and others were making observations about these white Indians in the so ocean. So you're, in- you're touching on their lifestyle, and I'm curious, is there anything in the records that indicates that they're you know, the you think of the American Indian as being more nomadic. You know, they're constantly traveling, whereas, you know, the Jewish and the Romans were pretty much, you know, they would stay in one place. You know what I mean? They would have a home. Is there something to indicate, like, their lifestyle? Were they moving in tents or were they building structures to live in? One of the one of the things that's specific as a very good question, one of the things that, that the Catlin um noticed was that they specifically had different uh village setup than the other Native Americans. Other Indians tend to be um uh mobile and these and this tribe lived always along uh a riverway and they were basically traders. And that was uh-huh. they were really the only tribe that did that. And the other thing he mentioned, I, I, I can read this to you as well is um, Catlin was particularly influenced by the Mandan being the only tribe who used stretched animal skins to build their canoes, design mirroring boats, mirroring boats of the British islands. So again, other things beyond just their living style, but even the way they made their canoes were, were, were European in style. So mm-hmm. there was a lot to their religious practices. Their, again, their appearance is the thing that most jumped out of people. Their language... Um, there was something going on there, and look, I may not have that story exactly right. They may not have anything to do with these Romans. It may be some other group, but the Mandan clearly had some kind of early European influence. Later on, unfortunately, the Mandan were wiped out by a smallpox uh, uh-huh. outbreak, so we don't really have many records of them. There's a, maybe a few members still alive, but they basically merged into other tribes. This would have well, been in the... In terms of the language, though, in terms of the language, is there anything saying, like, it was more like Roman, you know, like Italian, or was it more like it was, Hebrew? Actually, or... it, was more like, no, it was more Welsh. People said they called them the Welsh Indians because they thought the language was Welsh, and if you've ever heard people speak Welsh, it's very difficult to understand and to, and to, and to articulate, but people who are Welsh speakers right away said, understood them. You know, which, oh. is, which is amazing. They would come into this village and understand the language of this tribe. And that was probably the first thing that gave people. Uh, uh, so do you think these were Welsh soldiers that were in the legion, in the Roman legion? Exactly. I mean, uh-huh. exactly. The way the, the legion that was, that was the ninth legion that was stationed in Great Britain in England, I had been there for, 30 or 40 years at least. And so it, at some point it makes sense that they would have acquired 
English language, English spouses, English customs. And that's why we see a lot of the artifacts that are in the Ohio River Valley. We see Welsh, we see Welsh carving on the Brandenburg stone. We see Welsh armor. Um, we see evidence of Welsh language amongst the Mandan. Uh, it may be a later Welsh influence that I might have this wrong, um, but it may be later on the Welsh came over. I, I don't know, but, but there's something going on there with, with the Mandan and me trying to put the pieces together. This is the way I sort of saw it coming apart, coming, coming into play. So um, David, David, um, Keith, our wonderful sound engineer has a question. He always, he always comes up with a great question. So <laughs> take it okay. away. Keith. Hi, Dave. Uh, hey, Keith. I noticed uh, one of your pictures, 13. Is that an island? It looks like a turtle. Yeah, so, so this sort of moves into a, a whole nother um, angle to all this, Keith. Um, it's a, it's a, let me just get to the picture. But yeah, so the Native noticed, American. Have you noticed that uh, Oak Island looks like an elephant? <laughs> or a stag, yeah. So the, the story behind this, um, the Native Americans have always called North America Turtle Island. And if you ask them why, they say to you, it's because their their origin story, their 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 genesis story, their creation story, is that the, the North America was built on the back of a giant turtle that sort of surfaced from under the water, and the continent sits on his back, and that, so that's why the that's why they call it Turtle Island. But to me, if you look at that picture in thirteen, North America really does look like a turtle, and that begs the question. How did the Native Americans know that North America looks like a turtle unless there were some ancient peoples who were either circumnavigating the continent or flying above it? And I've always wondered about that because it really does look like a turtle. And how, but, and how did they know? Like, you know, putting aside their, their creation story, which I guess we could take them at their word, but it seems like an awfully big coincidence. Are you, familiar, like with, uh, are you familiar with the Badlands Guardian? No. Oh, you need to look that up. I, I showed that to uh, Eric Von Danigan at the uh, 2018 Alien Con in Baltimore, and he went, where is this? Where is this? <laughs> yeah, the Badlands, 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 what? Guardian, Badlands Guardian. Look that up hey. on on uh, on Google or YouTube. And when I that? saw that, I was like blown away because I'm saying – now, there's too many coincidences, right? I'm showing my friend, look at his shoulder. It comes out to our, our right. But look at these two parallel lines that come down. The one closest to his neck curves under his neck. It's not segmented. It's not broken. He's wearing a vest. And then I said, look at his neck. And you zoom in on his neck, you'll see two parallel lines going along his neck with a pattern in between the two parallel lines. He's wearing a neckband. And my friend says to me, I'm surprised he's got an eyelid. And I'm looking at this going, there's too many coincidences here. We've just blown probability out the water that this is a natural formation. And then if you look not too far away from this one, there is another one that looks like almost like a, a Viking with some kind of brimmed hat that sticks out with a pattern on the top of it. It's, and I'm like, there's too many coincidences in this one area. And, and the stuff on Mars 
all of those things. If I hadn't discovered the Morgan curve, I would have been still convinced that this is probably just you know tricks of light and shadow. But math doesn't lie, and and that's what the Morgan curve does. It 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 proves that that face on Mars and those other structures are artificial. They are mathematically aligned and and exponentially spaced. And I'm going, my goodness. And and we've got the same stuff right here it, in Utah. I, I went to visit my son and when he was living there. And we went down to um, the uh, park, the, the Arch Park, where the Utah Arch is at. And I saw all this fantastic stuff. And I'm going, this can't be natural. This can't be natural. There's a, a, a bus of Nefertiti up on top of this high ridge and you can clearly see this Egyptian headdress on this this bus and I'm like how can this thing be balanced like that with all that weight of that headdress on this thing the way it is and and there's a whole bunch of statues that are standing back to back to one another one looks one side looks like Anubis looking one direction another one looks like something else and the heads are at the, the top not one in the middle and one at the top it, I mean there's too many coincidences, and what you're finding, Oak Island is digging up stuff that's corroborating exactly what you're saying, stuff that coming from the 1400s, and 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 a little bit before. And how right. do you explain this stuff? So it's funny, Keith. One of one of the favorite one of my favorite expressions. My cat, my main character in my book, his name is Cameron Thorne. In my series of books. He always says, I don't believe in coincidences. So like you said earlier, it can't be a coincidence. Um, and by the way, that I agree with you 100% that Badlands Guardian is, is not naturally occurring. That's definitely man-made. Um, there's no way that it could be natural. But um, that's a very cool site. Thank you for telling me about that. But yeah, the, the, and you talked about Oak Island. And so that, you know, that's not related to the, to the Roman story, um, but it, it's sort of a later version of that, which talks about... In, in my opinion, the treasure that was brought over was most likely Templar treasure. And this, again, goes back to something Kinthy was asking about earlier, which is, you know, what, what's the story behind the Templars? Why were, they, why were they outlawed? Why were they fleeing Europe? Were they bringing some kind of treasure with them? Obviously, I think, yes. What was that treasure? Was it treasure in the traditional sense? Was it ancient secrets? of Christianity that people wanted to kept, uh, kept hidden? Was it uh, other kinds of ancient knowledge? Uh, was, it the, was it the treasures of the temple? Like the, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail. I mean, what was it that the Templars brought over here? It had to be something really important because obviously they were risking life and limb to get here. And, and I think they were coming here because it was sort of a, a safe haven, just like the Romans probably earlier. And it's, you know, it's a great place to go if no one else knows how to get there. Um, one of the things I think that one of the reasons why on Oak Island, on Curse of Oak Island, we haven't seen them actually find the treasure yet is I think it may have been, may have been originally deposited there, but then later taken out. And one of the really interesting theories I've heard, and I've seen some evidence to support that is that a group of Freemasons, again, the Masons are the de descendants of the Knights Templar, sort of the inheritors of their, of their, of their beliefs and of their culture that the Freemasons in the 1770s 
in New England were sent up to Oak Island to retrieve the Templar treasure and brought it back to fund the American Revolution. And that's sort of a fun story that makes you go, oh, that sort of all comes together and it, it would tie everything together nicely and make sense. And uh, that's, you know, we, I can't prove that, but that's something I've seen evidence that supports. And that's a fun, that's a fun possibility. Yeah, you are on the right track. Oak Island is on the right track. And as they dig up things that they just find, like you said, the coins, things like that, they, it's proving that history is not what we've been taught and it's going to blow wide open because every time you turn around, you find something new and uh, Zahi was, he, um, Elon Musk came out and said that the pyramids were built by aliens and Zahi was said, oh, he, he's, he's crazy or something like that. And I'm going, well, how do you get, tablets written in cuneiform from Samaria that are six to 7,000 years old. That makes them two to 3,000 years older than the Egyptian dynasty. So who built the pyramids? And yeah. the tablets are referencing the pyramids and the Sphinx. How do you get that? Okay. So well, who I built mean, them? Keith, 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 you're making a mistake of using logic in your argument. So, you know, come on. Yeah. Well, Somebody's got to use logic. <laughs> they don't want to. I, I'm, I'm like the, the, the curve on Mars. I found it by accident. An eighth grader with knowledge of geometry could have found what I found. You think those NASA scientists didn't have enough common sense to see what they were looking at? They know what they're looking at. They just don't want to admit of what they're looking at. The European Space Agency pushed them by taking a better picture of the face so now you can see the shadow side. But what do these rocket scientists do? They put it out upside down and said, oh, look, there's nothing there. So NASA <laughs> like plays the upside down. Yeah. NASA right. plays catch up. They take a better picture so you can see that shadow side. What do these rocket scientists do? They put it out upside down and said, oh, see, there's nothing there. You turn it around and you look at it. The other side is not a head on. It's a profile because it's a split image. Is a there's a lion's image in the upper left hand corner, but it makes up also the profile of a human face. And there's this upside down check mark right where the ear should be, but a ridge making this upside down check mark. The eye, the neck comes down with a curvature representing where the collarbone should be, the chin, and a hairline across the top. And I'm going, I'm just tracing this thing, and this is what it looks like, and nobody sees this. Something's wrong. And when the monolith stuff, the, the, with the monolith in, in um, Utah, right, there's the lion, the, the lion the, it, well, it looks like a puma to me, that was sitting on the right side. And then when they took the wide shot, when the guys were going down the hill, there's an image of a cat's face on the right side. And then when they removed the monolith, somebody took another picture looking at the puma and in the in this little area next to the right side of it is our eagle with the talons. And I'm going, nobody sees this stuff. Come on now. That's ridiculous. Utah is littered with artificial constructions that have been there for thousands and thousands of years. And they've just weathered down, but they've dismissed it as, Oh, this is natural. This is not. No. Now, when, when I confronted David children, Hatteras, at uh, 2018 AlienCon, 
And I said, what did you think of the Badlands Guardian? He said, oh, I think that's a natural form phenomena. <laughs> but then when they did the episode on it, he came around and said, oh, yeah, I think this is artificial. And I was like, okay. All right, we're about to come to break. Uh, Kenthea, you want to take us out? I'm happy to. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is David Brody. And uh, the show is called Romerica. And co-hosting with myself is Keith Morgan, our fantastic sound engineer. And hopefully Richard will be able to come back and join us. And this is Kinthea, and we'll catch you on the other side of the break. of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures mind. The other side of midnight.com. Hello? Hi, Keith. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast 
is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. the other side of midnight uh, i'm your host along with uh kinthea uh richard's feeling under the weather um so uh we had to step in to take over and we're talking to david brody uh david where did we leave off well actually you know i think huh go ahead <laughs> I, I think it would be really great, Keith, if we also bring Ron on because Ron is going to make this conversation with David really juicy. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. I, I called Ron. So That's his wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So welcome, Ron. So, David, go ahead where you left off, and, and Ron, you'll just be in the flow with us. Okay. Yeah, we, we had pretty much finished you know, the whole idea that, that the, the Mandan tribe – um, you know, may have been the vestiges of this Roman uh, journey to America in the second century. The one thing we hadn't really talked about too much was uh, the Burroughs Cave artifacts. Um, you know, we're talking about the Ohio River Valley. This is in southern Illinois, so just, a, just sort of continuing along that along that waterway. Um, for the listeners who may not be aware of the Burroughs Cave. Uh, those artifacts were discovered in the, I believe, in the 1980s. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody knows, but essentially a, a few thousand artifacts were taken out of the cave um, by Russell Burroughs. And there's a lot of question as to whether those are authentic or some kind of hoax. In my mind, there's it's too extensive a collection. There is too much expertise reflected in the artifacts design and too much nuanced history in some of the, um, uh, des- again, design of the artifacts for them to be the work of, uh, of Russell himself. Uh, Russell wasn't all, wasn't that educated to be able to come up with some of the sort of obscure, uh, for example, uh, one of the things that's, that's depicted is, is, a, is a menorah, uh, a seven-stemmed menorah in, in Israel in the first and century, second century, 
unlike other times of history, the menorah was built with a triangular base on, on, instead of a rectangular base. And the menorahs depicted on the Burroughs cave stones have the triangular base, which is, which is correct. Mm -hmm. But I'm just not convinced that Russell Burroughs uh, would have known that uh, or had access to that information. But and it's just one of many things about those, those artifacts that make me think they may be authentic. What's mm -hmm. interesting about the artifacts is they would be consistent with the story of a multi-ethnic Mediterranean group similar to the Roman Ninth Legion uh, settling in that area because there's Roman artifacts, there's Greek artifacts, there's Egyptian artifacts, there's Hebrew artifacts, there's Northern African artifacts. They, they really is, is sort of a United Nations of the Mediterranean region reflected in this depository, almost as if the peoples that did so were hoping to preserve their culture. They were in, in a new land and they wanted to preserve their culture through this collection of artifacts. And so... Um, so David, wait, hold on. Yes, sure. <laughs> so, hey, what's that going? It's hard to stop. Me. I know. <laughs> I've been trying to... So as you're looking at these artifacts, I imagine you've actually seen the artifacts themselves or are you looking in photos? I have a reason uh, I, I own about a dozen of them, and I've seen probably another hundred of them. Okay, the so what I'm curious about is, you know, we have many senses in which we understand or know things that we come into contact. It's not always what we see with our eyes. Sometimes it's what we feel. And as you are experiencing these artifacts, I'm just wondering if you're getting anything like remote vision or some kind of nuance knowing, because as you're talking about these past cultures, it almost feels as if you've been there. And I'm wondering if there's some overlay of information that's coming to you through the actual experience of the object itself. Yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could, you know, tell a fun story and say yes to that. But I'm, 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 I'm more left brain than that, unfortunately. I'm, 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 you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm sort of literal in, in that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't have those sensory skills. But I, I will say that I've shown the artifacts to a number of artists. My, my wife is a, is a sculptor. She does pottery and sculpting with clay. And so she runs in a, in a, in our, a group, in a, in a group with a number of other, other artists and sculptors. And I've shown a lot of these pieces to them and they, they universally say that whoever did these exhibited a very high degree of artistic skill. Uh, getting back to Russell Burroughs, who, who skeptics say he did these in his basement. Now, Russell was, he was a prison guard. He was a truck driver. He may have had some rudimentary woodworking skills, but he wasn't a, a, a sculptor or an artist. I just, I just don't see him being able to do this. Um, mm -hmm. There's a beauty to some of these pieces that, that, that transcends the idea of a hoax, you know, and there so you go the uh, word beauty. Yeah. So I do I, look, I, w I will say this, they, they were displayed in our living room for over a dozen years. Cause I was so moved by them. So maybe I, I didn't answer the question the correct way, but there, there's a, there's a spiritual quality to these artifacts that I, that I do feel, you know, maybe not quite as much to the extent you asked me about, but, but there's definitely something about them that are very compelling. Well, it sounds to me like, that you absolutely do feel it and it probably comes through in your writing as well because in your writing you are 
exploring potential realities. Right. And one of the things that, that um, readers all often say to me is that they can tell that the love I have for these stories, the passion I go. have. That's another the, one of those words. You, you can't yeah. measure love, can you? Yeah. Um, the excitement, uh, the passion um, that I have, uh, not only for the artifacts themselves, but for the, the characters and the stories. And, um, you know, this, this, I, I joke with my kids that, you know, if I die not having discovered the mystery behind these artifacts, I'm going to come back and haunt them till they figure it out. Like I, you know, this really keeps me up at night and gets me up in the morning. These, these, these mysteries of these, these, these artifacts, they have to tell some story. There's, there has to be a reason for them to be here. And I think I know what that story is in a lot of the cases. And sometimes I don't, but you know, whether I have all the details right or not, I, I can't be certain, but there is a story behind these artifacts. Great, great. I, I, I really sense it as you're describing it. I'm very visually oriented and I'm like sensing something very sensuous, very graceful, very beautiful. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Ron, would you like to add to the conversation here? Uh, I think I could add a little clarity to a couple of the things you've been talking about because one, the idea of where did they, why were they there? I heard David use uh, that earlier. The uh, well, they came up the Mississippi. See, I mean, something that you've all talked about is the fact that there were people here going way back. And uh, David, you referenced it too earlier that um, you know, of course, they knew that there was something over there and that they wouldn't fall off the edge of the earth. Uh, sure they did, but the Romans had just finished a rather um, nasty war with uh, Carthage, and the Carthaginians had better ships because they had access to materials that were in short supply for the Romans, and they came over here to get them. That's another documented. And one of the so they knew everything that was possible for somebody that was trying to find it out uh, about North America at that time. You know, they they were more. Well, I, they were, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I think the two possibilities is they came up the east coast, and 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 then crossed the you know Appalachian mountain range, or they came oh, up. They the, did both. The, yeah, but I think you're right. Yeah. I, I I think you're right. The the more accessible way to get there is up the Mississippi, and some of the Burroughs Cave artifacts. In fact, there's there are uh, map stones showing the route that they took up from the Mississippi. And and the and the right. number of days are depicted with dots and how they got off the Mississippi onto the Ohio and then eventually up the Ambaras River and and so yes I think that is correct I think they that would have been the much easier way to come up than across Appalachia. Well, they did both because they were they were probably on the East Coast first, but see they were chasing their predecessors and they knew people had gone over there, but. Uh, what the Romans wanted to find out was where the Carthaginians had been getting the tin that they needed to make bronze for their weapons. And that meant going all the way up the Mississippi and around the edges of the Great Lakes, you know, where they have those ancient copper mines. Right, it's copper, yeah. Uh, that was connected to that, yeah. Uh, yeah, but there was there was tin available as well. Copper is much easier to find than um, tin is. But in any case, they were uh, they were tracing every trail from every old map or story that they had to go by. So they went to the East Coast, and it was 
undoubtedly the Indians that lived in between there that excuse me, Native Americans, I used to, uh, that uh, they communicated with and they told them about these, oh, you guys are over there too, because they, they didn't necessarily know automatically that when they were up near the top of the Mississippi, they were right parallel to where they were parked over on, uh, you know, Maryland and North. That's supposition, but it's, you know, it's reasonable. But all the other stuff about the following the trail of the, um, Scandinavians that had been there before and whoever else it was. Um, that's pretty solid. So it, yeah, it ties together very nicely. The, uh, you find those same artifacts you're talking about and everything else. And, oh, right. one last. I'm not sure if you, if you were listening earlier on, we talked about how the, yes. the Phoenicians had come over and we think to, um, I think to, to mine, to mine and trade for copper and it had come over to yeah. the great lakes. Um, um, that's pretty and, much and, the same and, thing as, Carthage was a uh, an outgrowth of the Phoenicians. I mean, they say right. Phoenicians over in Lebanon. You follow around counterclockwise or clockwise around the Mediterranean, and you get over as far as modern day Libya, and that's where Carthage was. But all those civilizations right. in between were related. Uh, the uh, so yeah, David, yeah, no, that's a, it's a solid case. Yes, Cynthia. Yeah. So you were saying about how. Um, I'm sorry. Can I ask one more question while you're figuring out? All right, that, out? that I, I want to give space okay. for David to share with us. Oh, absolutely. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, now, I had a question. Uh, did you uh, – you hadn't talked much about uh, Henry Sinclair, and um, I just wondered uh, where you figured that the Sinclair legacy f- uh, fit into all of this because it's a big deal in politics, especially in ancient times in England. And I believe Princess Diana was a – Sinclair. Uh, yes, she she was a descendant. Um, I did talk about um, that. That's how I got my start in this whole thing. I lived ah. for a long time and raised my family in in Westford, which is the home of the Westford Knight legend Prince Henry Sinclair, coming to um, uh, basically following uh, the the route that the Norse took um, earlier across the North Atlantic uh, in 1398. Now Sinclair, what people don't realize, even though he was a Scotsman. His wife was uh, a Norse woman, so he was half Scottish and half Norse, and so it's likely that he would have found his way across based on oral history or maps or charts or written history, perhaps, on his mother's side of the family. So he ruled not only in, in, in Roslyn, which is north of Edinburgh, but also in the Orkney Islands, and the Orkney Islands came from his mother's side of the family, and again, that would have been the jumping off point to basically island hop his way across the North Atlantic. Iceland to Greenland to Labrador down to New Finland, Nova Scotia, and eventually into New England. Aha. Um, well, actually, we're close to the end of the show, and I know that Jonathan Womack is on the line, and he, he lives in, around in that territory. Are you still? Shall we bring him on for a moment? Sure. I'll take that as a yes. Keith, can sure. you bring John on? Hi, Kenzie. Can you hear me? Yeah, but you'll have to speak up a little more. Okay. Well, yes, I live in Massachusetts, so David, it's it's been neat hearing you talk about all these places uh, because I'm familiar with them. And how you doing, David? Doing great. great. Show, Thank by you. The way. Yeah. Thank you. Now, I grew up in Indiana, and. 
in the sort of southeastern part along Ohio, they have this Mounds State Park. And it just, when you were talking about the Romans being here, you know, in the second century, and these mounds were built um, about 2,000 years ago by some of the tribes there, the Hopewell and the Adena. And it just makes me, it, it makes me wonder if, you know, these two cultures were chilling out long before any of us ever knew because I can just imagine them sitting around a tent smoking some peyote or something, you know, the, the Welsh and, and the, the, uh, the Adena, um, you think that probably happened. I'm thinking. Listen, right? John, I, I have a very close friend who's a native American in, uh, lives in Southern Massachusetts. Um, and he always says, look, if the temp, he's, he, he, by the way, he's, he's, a, he's a Wampanoag tribal chief. And he says, yeah, the Templars did come here. But he always laughs and says, well, let me just tell you this. They came here because we said it was okay. If we didn't want them here, we would have kicked their ass and sent them home. And so <laughs> it's the same thing with, with the Romans coming across in, into the Ohio River Valley that they, they would not have been allowed to stay there if the local Native American tribes hadn't been okay with it. This was, you know, it's one thing after, after gunpowder was discovered and the pilgrims came over with their guns and they had obviously a, a huge tactical advantage over the Native Americans with firepower. But back then, there's no way that, that, that the, the Romans could have forced their way in here if the Native Americans didn't want them to be here. So um, you're right, the, the, the Hopewell and the Adena were right around that same time period, the burial mounds. There's a great thing called the Serpent Mound in Ohio, a giant like snake. It's now a golf course. You can, but you can still see the serpent mound. Um, but you're right. There had to be something going on there. Uh, it probably sitting around. And in fact, and I, I know we're getting a little bit low on time, but there's a, some really interesting legends about um, a, a group of tribe called the Yuchi, Y-U-C-H-I, and they're called the the Children of the Sun because they believe they came from across the Atlantic Ocean, from the land to the east, not across the Bering Strait, but they, they were basically in charge of the spiritual, it's called the Grand Medicine Society, basically spirituality of all the tribes of North America, that this one tribe was sort of in charge of that. And I've heard other people, a lot of people say that their ritual, which is called the Medewin ritual, is almost identical to that of Freemasonry. And this goes way back to the, you know, pre-contact time period. And so you have to wonder whether potentially some of the Medewin rituals that are linked to Freemasonry, maybe this stuff is really sort of an ancient knowledge that goes back to the early parts of the second century, and it's related to this whole story that we're telling here now. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's true or not, but it goes back to what you said about the, about the, the, the native culture sitting around and smoking and, and hanging out with, with the European visitors and reaching some kind of common uh, belief or common ground and, and some kind of alliance that was able to allow both groups to coexist. Yeah, and exchanging culture, uh, you know, part of their culture, I, I would imagine, too. I, th I, think, I, I think that's what happened. I know that when, when the Templars came to New England, Sinclair and his group in the 14th century, again, my Native American sources here tell me that that was, that was, a, that was a relationship built on trust and trade and mutual respect, unlike the pilgrims and the Puritans who came later. Hmm. Thank you, David. So, you know, as, 
as we're getting closer to the end of the show, I want to make sure to leave time, David, for you to uh, share with people how they could, you know, get a hold of some of your books, some of your writings. I can sure. add some information to the website. I see that I'd like to see more. <laughs> like it, where they it, can it, buy it. <laughs> it's really very simple. And, you know, we're, we're obviously in times are different than they were a year ago. You know, I used to be out doing a lot of lectures and, and book signings and whatnot. But basically now, you know, go to Amazon. The book is available. Uh, the first three in the series are, are audio. They're all available in paperback or in Kindle. I try to keep them uh, affordable because I want people to, you know, to be, have them, I want them accessible. I'm very passionate about this research and I want people to, to, to jump in with me and share my passion. Um, there's 11 books in this series right now. You can in jump in. Is, is, called, is it Romerica? Is that what the series is so called? Romerica is, Romerica is the 11th book. The series is called the Templars in America series. Templars in America. And my name is David Brody, B-R-O-D-Y. My website is davidbrodybooks.com. But again, if you go to Amazon and you look for the Templars in America series or the book itself, Romerica, which is the happens to be the last one in the series. Uh, as I said, again, they're all standalone stories. You can jump into anyone. There's one about Atlantis, if you happen to like Atlantis. Uh, earlier caller, I think it was Ron, mentioned Prince Henry Sinclair. That's the first book in the series. If you happen to be interested in um, the, the, the Celtic uh, travels here, there's a book called The Isaac Question, which delves into that. But essentially, it's each book just delves into different potential groups of of explorers coming to America. So you all get to live history in them. All history, plenty of history. All the books have pictures of all the images, just like we looked at the images on the website tonight during this interview. The books have pictures as well. Even though they're fiction, they are filled with images. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few authors who actually does that. It's important to me that my, my readers understand that even though the book itself is fiction, the artifacts and the sites and the artwork and the history is real. And I want people to see that. Wow. What a way to turn people on to history. It's not dry, you know, it comes to life. I love that. Oh, History is, is so much fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's so exciting. My, my daughter is, is a history teacher. You know, she just graduated from college. She's a history teacher. We're big history people in my family, but history can be so much fun. It's so rich and vibrant. It doesn't have to be, you know, dull and boring and and I try to write it that way. I try to make it really exciting. Well, I've known two people, two friends of mine who are like really into history. And when I talk with them, I have the sense that they are remembering past lives because the details that they remember are very detailed, very sensuous, very um, multidimensional. I really get a sense that they're somehow tapping into another another self it's not somebody else's story it's their story they're telling it from the first person it's very interesting you know obviously you know animals have that that sort of ability to pass on memory generation after generation and i'm sure humans some point in our dna have that as well so it wouldn't surprise me at all right definitely so we have just a couple minutes. I do, I do want to just ask everyone to hold good thoughts for Richard. He did 
start the show and he was going like rocket gangbusters. He was so on. He and was. then suddenly took ill and um you know, he needs some good wishes. It's been a really rough winter for him, so I'm asking everyone to send him a little love. You know, send him a little love. Uh Ron, John, Keith, anything yep. else you'd like to add to this conversation? Um, not me. It was it was fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to further conversation, but there's no there's no reason to go off on any more go off the yeah. rails any in any other direction right now. The show's about over. I have to give David credit. He handled all these different hosts really well. Oh, another hour if people have more questions. I, you know, my wife laughs at me because. You know, we get to a cocktail party or a dinner party or whatever, you know, and I won't shut up because I just love this stuff. I just just sort of put a bow on this whole thing. You know, people ask me why why I care so much about this. And and really, it's it's all about that that classic that that line where human beings, we, we, we can't determine where we need to go until we understand where we've been. Like, Mm. that's why it's so important. And so if we don't understand our own history, then there's no way we can get, get it right going into the future. And I feel very strongly about that. So, you know, whether it's a conspiracy or just because people are stubborn or, or, or mistaken or whatever, I don't really even care why it is we don't have it right, but it's clear to me we don't have it right. And we need to understand, have a better understanding of our past and of our history so we can get it right going forward. And I guess that's sort of the, the last word I'd like to have on this whole thing is, you know, history is really important, and that's why I feel so passionate about it. Well, and I love that because right now, even more so, the way the young generation is growing up, many of them don't hardly even know their grandparents' lives, let alone their ancestors. So this has been a wonderful show. Our guest tonight has been David Brody, bringing us the uh, discoveries of the Romans in America And our co-hosts have been Keith Morgan, uh, Ron Gibran, John Womack was another caller, and myself, Kinthea, and we've all been standing in for Richard. Good night, all. Wishing you all the very best. Ciao.